I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part seven of Hamlet. Open your copy to Act 4, Scene 4, and we'll begin. And the first thing you'll notice is that we're not in the castle anymore which makes this the one and only scene that takes place outside of Elsinore. And the other thing you'll notice is that we have a late entering new character, but maybe it's not right to call him a new character because we've heard of him a lot. It is the notorious Fortinbras, Prince of Norway, that guy from before. This is that guy who was going out of his way to try and conquer back what his father lost to old King Hamlet back in the day. Now that plan got shut down by his uncle, the King of Norway. So he decided instead of Denmark, he'd go off and conquer Poland. And that's what he's on his way to do when we meet him in this scene. Sometimes you'll see a stage direction in this scene, enter Fortinbras with his whole army over the stage. It's a pretty grandiose stage direction. Usually productions just have Fortinbras and his captain and a few guys with swords. But Shakespeare hasn't stopped sprinkling this guy's mentions and appearances throughout the play. You'll see why later. But first we have to see what he's doing here now. He says to his captain, Go, Captain, from me greet the Danish king. So he's sending an emissary off to Claudius. He goes on, Tell him that by his license, Fortinbras craves the conveyance of a promised march over his kingdom. By his license, by his official permission, Fortinbras craves the conveyance. In other words, asks for the escort of a promised march over his kingdom. So if you remember all the way back to Act 2, Scene 2, the scene that wouldn't end, the Norwegians had sent a message to Claudius saying, okay, we won't attack you. Is it all right if we march over your land, though, to get to Poland, which we do want to attack? And Claudius was fine with that. That's the license and the promised march that Fortinbras is talking about here. He just wants to double check with Claudius to make sure that it's okay if his giant army marches over his kingdom. It's professional courtesy. And he says, you know the rendezvous? Which just means the prearranged meeting place. So when you're done with Claudius, come back to me at that place we agreed on before. He says, if that his majesty would aught with us, we shall express our duty in his eye and let him know so. So if Claudius would aught with us, which means if he wants anything from us, we shall express our duty in his eye. Notice, by the way, that Fortinbras is using us and we, that royal we. Now, admittedly, he's the prince. He's allowed to do it. But this is the talk of someone who wants more than just to be prince. And he says, we shall express our duty in his eye. In other words, we'll show our duty to him in his presence. So if Claudius wants anything with Fortinbras before he moves on to Poland, he should just tell the captain and Fortinbras will show up in person. And the Norwegian captain, being a military man, says, I will do it, my lord. And Fortinbras exits with one more word to the captain, go softly on. Softly doesn't mean quietly, it means carefully or slowly. Like, be careful wandering around the countryside of Denmark. It's probably carefully guarded. So Fortinbras and his entire army leave, and just as the captain is going off, who should he meet but Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Remember these guys from the last scene? Yeah, they're on their way to that fast boat to England. So this is probably within sight of Elsinore. And Hamlet isn't exactly chained here, but I'm sure they're watching him very carefully. Remember, Hamlet doesn't trust them, and they probably don't trust him at this point either. And Hamlet is understandably surprised to see a giant army marching across his territory. So he says to this captain, Good sir, whose powers are these? Powers meaning armies. It's not magical powers. It's just Norwegians. And the captain says back, they are of Norway, sir. And Hamlet's curious. He asks more. How purposed, sir, I pray you. Purposed is the verb form of purpose, like intention. So how are they directed? How are they intended to be used? I pray you, I ask you. And the captain says, against some part of Poland. And Hamlet keeps asking, who commands them, sir? And the captain answers, the nephew to old Norway, Fortinbras. Norway, remember, is the king of Norway. So it's his nephew, Fortinbras. Hamlet has probably heard of this guy, by the way. He's pretty notorious among the fatherless, revenging Scandinavian prince club. 
And Hamlet's still curious. He asks, goes it against the main of Poland, sir, or for some frontier? The main is the major sort of central part. Like, are they taking downtown Warsaw? Or is it some frontier, some edge territory? And the captain, not knowing who he is, just kind of unloads. He says, truly to speak, and with no addition, we go to gain a little patch of ground that hath in it no profit but the name. So truly to speak, to speak true, and with no addition, addition meaning like exaggeration or augmenting of facts, we go to gain a little patch of ground. We're taking this dinky little piece of dirt that hath in it no profit but the name. Profit being profitable qualities, like any way you could benefit off this land. So its only profit is the name, which means being able to say that you've conquered it. So that's the only good thing that could come out of this land. He goes on, to pay five ducats? Five? I would not farm it. Nor will it yield to Norway or the Pole a ranker rate should it be sold in fee. A ducat, remember, is a gold coin that's worth a little less than a pound. And farm it here doesn't mean that he's actually going to do the sowing and hoeing. It means rent it out for use as a farm. So you couldn't even get five measly ducats in rent on it. Nor will it yield to Norway or the Pole. And not only that, it won't get the king of Norway or the king of Poland a ranker rate. There's that word rank again. Here it means like a higher or bigger rate. Should it be sold in fee? In fee just means completely as opposed to renting it out. So you can't get five ducats for it to rent it out, and it probably won't get even much more if you were to actually sell it. So this is garbage land, in other words. And so Hamlet draws the logical conclusion. He says, why, then the Polak never will defend it. The Polak here being the king of Poland again. So he's never even going to send people to defend it. It's yours. But no, the captain has news for him. He says, yes, it is already garrisoned. Like the Polish have already sent in defenders to fight the invading Norwegians. And Hamlet's amazed. He says, 2,000 souls and 20,000 ducats will not debate the question of this straw. So 2,000 souls, 2,000 men, and maybe even 2,000 dead men, and 20,000 ducats, way more than that five he was talking about, will not debate. So they're not going to sit down and have an Oxford-style debate. It means they won't even be enough to resolve. What? The question of this straw. The question here is like the conflict over this straw. A straw is just another way of saying nothing, like a little piece of hay. So they're sending all these soldiers and all this money in, and that's not even going to be enough to resolve the conflict over all this garbage land. And based on that, he says... This is the imposthume of much wealth and peace that inward breaks and shows no cause without why the man dies. An imposthume is another way of saying a boil or an abscess. Remember from the scene with Gertrude where he talked about the ulcerous place? This is that same image. It's an infection that heals over just at the top so the infection is sealed within and it starts to fester and rot inside but the outside looks totally healthy. So the comparison he's making here is that it's the imposthume of much wealth and peace. So basically there's too much money lying around. There hasn't been a war in a little while. And so this infection starts that inward breaks, that sort of spreads into the body or even pops into the body and shows no cause without, no external cause because the skin looks totally normal, why the man dies. So you have these healthy looking countries and all of a sudden this infection of war just pops up. And there's no way to tell on the surface where it came from. Again, this is just another example of that image of the rotten interior and the fine-looking exterior that runs all throughout the play. So Hamlet's pretty chastened by all this, and he says to the captain, I humbly thank you, sir. And the captain has to get off to see Claudius, so he says, God be with you, sir. Short for God be with you, or how we'd say goodbye. Well, that's over, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are pretty eager to get going. So Rosencrantz says, well, please you go, my lord. So is it all right if we get going now? But Hamlet's got a soliloquy coming on. So he says to them, I'll be with you straight. Straight meaning straight away, at once. I'll be right there. Go a little before. Go a little ahead of me. Because you can't do a soliloquy if there's other people on stage. It's just not done. And they're probably a little wary of leaving this guy alone. But soliloquizers gotta soliloquize, you know? Clearly something about this Fortinbras thing has touched a nerve in Hamlet. Because when everyone else leaves, he turns to the audience and says, How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. 
as though every occasion, every event that happens to him does inform against me. Like an informer, it accuses him of guilt and spur my dull revenge. Spurming to urge on, like you would to a horse to get it to go faster. You know that you have those spurs, the boots that prick on the horse. And what do they spur on? My dull revenge. His slow revenge. So it seems like everything he sees is just taunting him about how slow he is to get his revenge. And he starts to get very down on himself. He says, What is a man if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? So what is a person if his chief good, if his sort of greatest good in life, and market of his time, market meaning like a profitable use of his time, is only to sleep and feed? Notice he doesn't say sleep and eat. He says feed, like an animal would. I love this line. This feels so real to me. Whenever I feel like I'm not being a useful person, I just feel like all I do is eat and sleep. And maybe there's a little TV and internet in here, but Hamlet didn't have TV and internet. You just feel so useless, like an animal. And that's exactly what Hamlet says. A beast, no more. Any animal could sleep and feed. And Shakespeare does it again. It's a line with only single syllables in it. It slows it down and makes it really blunt and obvious. He continues... Sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Sure, surely, he that made us, in other words, God who made us, with such large discourse, with such considerable powers of reasoning, looking before and after, this, by the way, is what makes us human. It's the ability to remember what we did in the past and to plan for what we want to do in the future. So God gave us this reasoning and this mind that can plan and remember, but he gave us not that capability and godlike reason. So he didn't give us all those abilities, plus the power to reason almost like a god would, to fust in us unused. Fust is an incredible word. You can just spit it out. It means to get moldy, but the sound of it almost says everything. So God didn't give us all these awesome qualities if they were just going to sit there not being used and get moldy, which is obviously what he thinks he's been doing. So he's going to turn now to himself. He says, now, whether it be bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, a thought which quartered hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward, I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do, sith I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. Now, whether the reason for my inaction is bestial oblivion, in other words, forgetfulness, like an animal would have, not remembering his father's command, or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, craven being sort of cowardly, and scruple of thinking meaning being too thorough in your thinking, like examining everything too much, thinking too precisely on the event, in other words, about what's going to happen once the act is carried out. And then he has this little parenthetical here. A thought which quartered hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward. So this is kind of a funny image. He says that his thinking too precisely on the event is a thought which quartered. So if you were divided into four parts, it hath but one part wisdom. Only one of those parts, only one quarter of that thought would be wisdom and ever three parts coward. Ever meaning always three quarters of that thought is going to be cowardly. So he may have tried to pass this off as wise prudence, but actually it's mostly cowardice on his part. And that's the end of that parenthetical. So whatever reason for his delaying, he goes on to say, I do not know why yet I live to say this things to do. I don't know why I'm still around to be able to say this things to do. In other words, this thing hasn't been done yet. So by all rights, he should have carried this out. He should be dead. Why? Since I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. Sith is just an old-timey way of saying since. 
In fact, that'd be a really smart thing to change in production since it's just a very archaic word. Yeah, there's no reason he shouldn't have done it. He has the cause to do it. He has the will to do it. He has the physical strength to do it. And he has the means to do it. And notice again, it's another line full of monosyllables. It just makes it really super clear. He's getting on himself again for blowing it. And now he's on his way to England. He may never have another chance. He says, examples gross as earth exhort me. So why hasn't he done it? He says he has examples gross as earth gross meaning heavy or weighty or even obvious as the earth that's pretty heavy they exhort me exhort means to appeal really strongly to someone so it's as though these examples are actually begging him to do this and here's one example and this is where it comes back to fortinbras he says witness this army of such mass and charge led by a delicate and tender prince whose spirit with divine ambition puffed makes mouths at the invisible event exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune death and danger dare so here's an example witness this army look at this army here of such mass and charge charges expense so it's this huge expensive army led by a delicate and tender prince why is he delicate and tender probably because he's young he's probably about hamlet's age or maybe even a little younger whose spirit with divine ambition puffed so he's saying that portenbras's spirit is puffed with divine ambition puffed meaning inspired but it's a much more specific word than that, almost as though ambition has been blown into his spirit by God. And notice he calls ambition divine, as though he wishes he had that. So Fortinbras's spirit makes mouths at the invisible event. Makes mouths, we've seen before, it means to make faces at or mock at the invisible event. Remember from a few lines up, thinking too precisely on the event, which is what Hamlet does? Well, this is the invisible event. Event is the result of the campaign he's launching, and it's invisible because you can't know what the result is going to be. It's unclear right now. But Fortinbras's spirit just makes fun of that. He says, the hell with it. I'm going to go try it even though I don't know how it's going to turn out. And the result of this is exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death, and danger dare. So what is mortal and unsure? Probably his own life and others' lives. And his actions expose those lives to all that fortune, death, and danger dare. It's a very exciting line. You can hear those three D sounds. It really makes Fortinbras sound awesome. Dare here probably means something more like threaten. So the lives are exposed to whatever fortune and death and danger might threaten to do to them. And he does that, Hamlet concludes, even for an eggshell. So he's doing all these brave things and he's risking everything for an eggshell. In other words, for a totally worthless thing. But I love that word choice of eggshell because instantly it's a tactile thing in the world that everyone understands. Everyone's seen an eggshell. It's a little piece of garbage. It's thin and easily breakable. And that's what this land in Poland is. So he's taking all these brave, maybe foolish actions just to get this nothing. And Hamlet says, rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at the stake. So what it actually means to be great, at least in this modern world Hamlet lives in, is not to stir without great argument, argument being like a cause or a reason. So it isn't to take action without a reason, but instead it's greatly to find quarrel in a straw. And notice the three different ways that Shakespeare uses variations on the word great in that sentence. To be great, without great argument, and greatly to find quarrel. So to find a reason to fight in a straw. Remember they use the word straw at the beginning of the scene to describe that land? You know, this meaningless nothing when honor's at the stake. We use that phrase at the stake a lot, but it's a gambling term. It means at risk, just like you stake a bet on chance in gambling. So his definition of greatness is that you go to war for anything when your honor's at the stake, when your honor's sitting there in the middle of the betting table. And Hamlet turns it back on himself again. He says, How stand I then, that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep 
while to my shame I see the imminent death of twenty thousand men that for a fantasy and trick of fame go to their graves like beds, fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. This is a very long uninterrupted sentence, so you can really see him gathering steam and getting excited. He says, how stand I then? You know, how do I look? That have a father killed. Now you could read this as, now you could read this as, I have a father who was killed. But another way to read it is that I killed my own father, or I let him be killed. By the same token, a mother stained, as though she's been corrupted by Claudius, especially sexually corrupted. So he has a dead father and a stained mother, excitements of my reason and my blood. Excitements are like calls to action, things that excite you to act. And blood, remember, is your passionate side, your emotions. So he has reason to act from both his calm reason and his excitable blood. But what has he done? He's let all sleep. That's a beautiful metaphor. He's just let everything rest. And in contrast to his inaction, he says, while to my shame, I see the imminent death of 20,000 men. So he's doing nothing, but now there's 20,000 men who are going off to die any second now. That for a fantasy and trick of fame, for some imagined reason, a trick of fame, a trick like an illusion of fame, of reputation, that if they win this little war over nothing, their honor will be inflated. Their reputation will be so great. So because of that illusion, they're going to their graves like beds. That's another beautiful image. And obviously you lie down in your grave just as you lie down in your bed, but it's almost as though they're just as willing to die as they would be to lie down in their comfortable bed at night. And what else do they do for this illusion? They fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause. So they're fighting for a tiny little piece of land that isn't even big enough to hold all the soldiers who are going to fight over it. Like you couldn't even hold the battle on that land. It's so small. And not only that, he says, it is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain. So not only isn't it big enough to hold the war, it's not a big enough tomb and continent, not in the sense of like North America, but like a container to hide the slain. In other words, to bury the people who die. So it's not big enough to fight in, and it's also not big enough to hold the people who are going to die in the war. All these guys are going off to that, and Hamlet can't even get up the courage to kill one guy. And he comes to a conclusion, oh, from this time forth... My thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. From now on, my thoughts are either about killing or they're worth nothing. It's a nice little rousing rhyming couplet. So obviously this is something we've seen in Hamlet before, that wanting to be able to act and not being able to. But the end is very much Hamlet the killer. This is a guy now who has killed someone who knows what it takes. And he's very dedicated to getting what he wants. It's a little bit chilling even. By the way, this monologue is only in one of the texts. I think it's in the second quarto. So some people don't even include it in productions, but I really like it. I think it gives you real insight into Hamlet. And this is the guy who goes off to England. We know he's already planning to find a way to get back because it's possible that the action of the play could sag a little bit here. And this is a way to really pick it up again and go. And as we go into act four, scene five, we're back in the castle again. And you may ask what can happen in this play now that Hamlet is on his way to another country. And the answer is you've forgotten about somebody. And it's an unusual combination of characters who comes on stage at the beginning of this. Notice that Shakespeare is again doing this thing where he brings us on in the middle of a conversation, and it's a particularly mysterious conversation. In comes the queen, followed by Horatio, and this one other guy. Sometimes you'll actually see this other guy, sometimes called the gentleman, have his lines given to Horatio just so it clears things up a little bit, because it's strange to put a new character in here so late. And Gertrude is trying to get away from them. She says, I will not speak with her. Her who? Well, there's only one other woman in this play. And the gentleman says, she is importunate, indeed distract. We've heard that word importune before. It means ask strongly. Here it's like someone who's really demanding or persistent. Indeed, distract. Well, we've heard that word before, usually about Hamlet. It means something like unbalanced or deranged. And that's really new, disturbing news, because the only other woman in this play is Ophelia. Remember Ophelia, the one who uses my lord all the time? 
who does exactly what she's told, who's kind of been kicked around all play. Now she's being described as distract and importunate, very bold and all over the place. And the gentleman says, her mood will needs be pitied. Mood here is like her state of mind. So even if you don't pity her, you should at least pity her state of mind. Will needs be, in other words, has to be. So she's importunate? Fine, Gertrude says. What would she have? In other words, what does she want if she's so importunate? And the gentleman says, she speaks much of her father, says she hears there's tricks in the world, and hems and beats her heart, spurns enviously at straws, speaks things in doubt that carry but half sense. So it's a list of how she's acting. In some ways, it's a lot like that list of behaviors that Ophelia first told her father about Hamlet before we even saw him acting crazy. So she says a lot about her father, who, remember, has been murdered by her boyfriend says she hears there's tricks in the world, in other words, deceptions, and hems. You've probably heard the expression hems and haws. It's just a way of saying that she says hmm a lot and beats her heart, spurns enviously at straws. We've heard that word spurns before. It means kicks or strikes out at. And enviously doesn't mean like she envies them. It means maliciously or vindictively at straws. We just heard that in the last scene. It means nothings, unimportant things, maybe even literal straws. So little nothings set her off. She speaks things in doubt. She says things that have a doubtful or vague meaning that carry but half sense. This is an extremely troubling picture. He goes on. Her speech is nothing, yet the unshaped use of it doth move the hearers to collection. So she's been saying these doubtful things. Her speech is nothing. In other words, the thing she says is nonsense. Yet the unshaped use of it, this sort of misshapen quality of that speech, doth move, in other words, urges or inspires the hearers to collection. It's not like they all go off and start stamp collections. It means that they all try to find some meaning in it. This is almost like that idea that this is madness, but there's method in it that Polonius said about Hamlet's madness. So she's saying these crazy things, but there's something about what she's saying that makes people try to make sense of it. And what else do they do? They aim at it and botch the words up to fit their own thoughts, which as her winks and nods and gestures yield them, indeed would make one think there might be thought, though nothing sure, yet much unhappily. So they aim at it. They take aim at the speech, which is a really interesting way of saying that, and botch the words up to fit their own thoughts. Botch up means to sort of clumsily put together or patch together to fit their own thoughts. So people take her nonsense and they rearrange it so it matches what they want to think which as her winks and nods and gestures yield them. So since her winks and nods and gestures seem to add meaning to these words, they would make one think there might be thought. So not just the word she says, but the way she looks at them and the gestures she uses almost make you think that there really is thought there. Though nothing sure, nothing certain, yet much unhappily, these very sort of unfortunate matters. So she doesn't say anything certain, but there's something really upsetting about it. And from this, Horatio jumps in to say, "'Twere good she were spoken with, for she may strew dangerous conjectures in ill-breeding minds. So because of this, it's important you talk with her, for she may strew, strew meaning distribute freely, dangerous conjectures. Conjectures are just guesses based on this really incomplete evidence in ill-breeding minds. These are the minds of people who are planning evil things or making mischief. Remember how Claudius wanted to keep Polonius's death as under control as possible so he wouldn't get blamed for it? Well, there's all these rumors going on. There's probably a little instability. So you don't necessarily want this girl wandering around the palace telling everybody everything, hinting at things about her father and all this stuff about tricks. She could be a real political liability. And notice, Gertrude didn't originally want to speak to Ophelia, but as soon as she hears this political side, she says, let her come in. Who knows, maybe Gertrude has been the brains behind the operation all along. And they go off to get her. And then Gertrude has the smallest little monologue, which is one of the very few times we see into what she's thinking. She says, To my sick soul, as sin's true nature is, each toy seems prologue to some great amiss. Remember her spotted soul? Now it's a sick soul. 
as sin's true nature is, since this is what sin really is like. Notice, by the way, all those S sounds. There's something really sinister about this line. Each toy seems prologue. Not literal toys, of course, but every seemingly meaningless event or trifle, every nothing, seems prologue. Remember we had a prologue in the play within a play? It's a character who announces what's about to happen. So each meaningless nothing seems like it's announcing some great amiss about to happen. An amiss is like a disaster. We're used to things being described as amiss, but this is amiss as a noun. So every little nothing seems to indicate that everything's about to fall apart. And she says that's what it's like when you've sinned or when you're guilty. You think things might fall apart every second, and everything you see reminds you of that. And then she ends with one little rhyming couplet. So full of artless jealousy is guilt, it spills itself in fearing to be spilt. So guilt is so full of artless jealousy. Artless meaning sort of fumbling or unskilled, just clumsy. And jealousy, not in our modern sense, but in the sense of like anxiety. So guilt is so full of this clumsy anxiety, it spills itself in fearing to be spilt. You can almost imagine someone carrying a really full glass of water, worried about whether it's going to spill. And by doing that, it spills. And spills in this case also means reveals. So when you're worried about revealing something, that's exactly when you reveal something. It's a very short little speech, but it says a lot about where her mind is right now. Again, it's a real question of what she's guilty over. Is it marrying Claudius, or is it something more? And then in comes Ophelia with this famous stage direction, probably added later, enter Ophelia distracted. Not distracted by her phone, crazed. And look, most people come into Hamlet knowing that Ophelia's going to go crazy later in the play. Crazy Ophelia. But I want you to put yourself under a spell, if you can. A spell of forgetfulness. Imagine that you had never heard that this is going to happen later in the play. Imagine all you knew was this very young woman who goes through a lot of bad things, who has all these men using her, all these powerful people taking advantage of her, has just had to break up with her boyfriend for no particular reason, has just watched him go crazy, has had to sit in public while she was made fun of in front of the entire court, and then has just had her father die at the hands of her boyfriend, all the while trying to behave as well as she could under the circumstances. She's been obedient, she's been polite. And then you see her in this scene, and her mind is gone. It should be a huge shock, especially because the person we're about to meet is so different from that character in many ways. And she's going to conform to all those stage ideas about what insanity looked like. Being too honest, singing, the way she's dressed. But I think this isn't just stage conventions. I think if you've ever known someone with a mental illness who's had a break like this, they feel real. And it's really interesting to me to contrast her madness with Hamlet's madness which is a crafty madness. It's one that he put on. And he checks all the boxes, but it's never scary. And here, it's scary. And it's interesting, too, that she comes looking for the queen, especially because all the men have already let her down. And when she starts talking, she actually seems fairly normal. She is her usual formal self with the queen. She says, Where is the beauteous majesty of Denmark? And Gertrude says, How now, Ophelia? So what's up? And then instead of talking back, she sings, which is not necessarily something you do to the queen. How should I your true love know from another one? By his cockle hat and staff and his sandal shoon. This, by the way, is a pretty famous love song. And what do the words mean? How should I your true love know from another one? How can I tell your love apart from some other guy? By his cockle hat. In other words, a hat decorated with a seashell and staff and his sandal shoon. Shoon is an old-timey word for shoes. So his sandals. And all these things were the traditional clothes of a religious pilgrim on a pilgrimage to some sort of shrine. So it's comparing a religious pilgrim to a forlorn lover who's making a pilgrimage to the person they love. 
And Gertrude is pretty surprised by this. She says, alas, sweet lady, what imports this song? What imports this song? What does this song mean? What does it signify? Why are you even singing? And Ophelia says, say you? In other words, what did you say? Nay, pray you mark. No, just pay attention. She sings, he is dead and gone, lady, he is dead and gone. At his head a grass green turf, at his heels a stone. Oh ho! Gone and stone probably rhymed back in the day. And this is another song, this one about someone who's dead, with a gravestone over his feet and grass over his head. So it seems like she's made references both to Hamlet and to Polonius. This is starting to get out of control. Gertrude says, nay, but Ophelia. And Ophelia snaps back at her. She says, pray you mark. I asked you to pay attention to me, to listen. Notice, by the way, that we're in prose now. This is the same thing that Hamlet did when he was pretending to be crazy. She draws people from the order of verse into the chaos of prose. But her madness is much stranger and realer than Hamlet's was. She starts singing again. White his shroud as the mountain snow. And as she's singing, the king enters. Maybe someone's tipped him off that this is happening, because this could be a real PR problem. When he comes in, Gertrude says, Alas, look here, my lord. Like, look what's going on. This is terrible. And Ophelia continues her song all the while. She sings, Larded all with sweet flowers, Which be wept to the grave did not go, With true love showers. So it seems like this is another song about death, about Polonius. So white his shroud. His shroud was as white as mountain snow. Larded all with sweet flowers. Larded means covered. Comes from this idea that you'd cover meat with lard or bacon before you roasted it to baste it with fat. But in this case, it's larded with sweet flowers, with sweet-smelling flowers, like you'd throw onto a body. Which bewept to the grave did not go. Bewept means cried over. And it's possible the original song was to the grave did go. She puts that not in there. What we're going to learn is actually that Polonius was buried kind of secretly so that the news wouldn't get out. And this was after Hamlet had dragged him around for a few hours. So she maybe didn't even have the chance to see her father buried. So the body didn't go to the grave, be wept with true love showers. The showers here being another way of saying tears. And I doubt Claudius is very excited about this crazy girl singing songs in public about how her father's body was disrespected. He can't have that information getting out. This is just another problem that Claudius doesn't need. He goes right up to her and says, How do you, pretty lady? How are you doing? And she says, Well, God dealt you. And this is short for, May God yield you? May God repay you? And then all of a sudden she changes topics. She says, They say the owl was a baker's daughter seems to kind of come out of nowhere. This is real insanity. There was a popular folktale that Jesus had turned a baker's daughter into an owl when she refused to give him bread when he was passing by. So that's where this non sequitur comes from. And from there she says, Lord, we know what we are, but know not what we may be. I guess we may be an owl. It's possible also there's some relation with her, since the owl is this bird that goes around hooting mournfully, that she is the daughter who has to kind of go around and lament her father since no one else will. And after that strangeness, she says, God be at your table, almost like a wish for him. May God be at your table, which is a pretty funny wish. And Claudius turns to Gertrude and says, conceit upon her father. Conceit meaning fantasies or these kind of imagined ideas. Again, he has to maintain publicly that he was treated well. But Ophelia hears that and she says, pray, let's have no words of this. She doesn't want to hear her father mentioned. And she goes on, but when they ask you what it means, say you this. As though she's going to reveal what all this means. And instead she sings again. Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning be time. And I am made at your window to be your valentine. Then up he rose and donned his clothes and dupped the chamber door. Let in the maid that out a maid never departed more. What this is here, folks, is a dirty song. Not necessarily the sort of thing you sing to the king and queen. So let's get into the dirty, dirty meaning of the song a little bit. Be time means early, so it's very early in the morning. And I am made at your window. Maid means a young woman, but specifically a virgin. 
to be your valentine. So it's a young woman who sneaks in the window of her boyfriend's place on Valentine's Day. And up he rose and donned his clothes. He put on his clothes and dupped the chamber door. Dupped just being another way to say opened. Let in the maid, but out a maid never departed more. So here's your dirty joke. So he let her in the window, but when she left, she wasn't a maid anymore. In other words, she wasn't a virgin anymore. So he let in a virgin, but she didn't leave a virgin. And this is really embarrassing for Claudius to have this very young, usually well-behaved woman singing dirty songs in his court in the middle of the day. And he says, pretty Ophelia, as though he's going to stop her. And she says, indeed, Lob, without an oath, I'll make an end on it. Without an oath, meaning without using bad words. You'll notice when she starts singing again, she's going to use euphemisms for Jesus and God. So she's implying that he's only trying to stop her because he's worried she might use bad words. But she's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'll make an end on it. I'll finish it without using any bad words. She sings, by just and by St. Charity, alack and fie for shame. Young men will do it if they come to it. By cock they are to blame. Quoth she, before you tumble me, you promise me to wed. He answers, so would I had done by yonder son, and thou hast not come to my bed. So by just, short for by Jesus, and by St. Charity, a lack and fie for shame. These are expressions of disgust or shaming. Young men will do it if they come to it. Come to it means they have the opportunity to do it, though come to it certainly has some euphemistic meanings too. So if you give young men a chance to have sex, they're going to do it. And by cock is a euphemism for by God, but not necessarily an inoffensive euphemism for God. They are to blame. Quoth she, she said, before you tumbled me, which is a kind of hilarious euphemism for sex, you promised me to wed. You promised you'd marry me. Isn't that always the way, sister? And then he answers, so what I had done, I would have done that by yonder son. I swear by that son over there. And thou hadst not come to my bed if you hadn't come to my bed. Like I would have married you if you hadn't slept with me. Oh, burnt. This song is another reason why some people think that maybe the Ophelia-Hamlet relationship got serious in a hurry, that there's some indication in this song that he loved her and left her. But at the very least, it's a super inappropriate song to be singing right now. And Claudius is understandably horrified. He says, how long hath she been thus? Thus meaning this way or like this. In other words, how long has she been acting crazy? But Ophelia continues. She says, I hope all will be well. We must be patient. But I cannot choose but weep to think they would lay him in the cold ground. So I hope everything's going to turn out all right. We have to be patient. Patient is usually something that was applied specifically to grief, like you have to get over your grief. But I cannot choose but weep. I cannot help from crying to think they would lay him in the cold ground. Here she seems to be talking specifically about her father. And then she has kind of a threat. My brother shall know of it. Oh yeah, remember that guy? She's going to let him know about it. And so I thank you for your good counsel. Counsel being advice, but notice that was Polonius's job, because they haven't really given her any counsel in this scene. And then she calls off stage, Come, my coach! As though she's calling for her horse-drawn coach, which she does not have. Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night. She seems to almost be acting the part of a queen or a fancy lady. And notice she echoes the way that Gertrude talked to her at the beginning of the scene. Gertrude called her sweet lady. And here Ophelia mimics her. Good night, sweet ladies. So it's almost as though Ophelia is parodying the queen that she might even have become if she had married Hamlet. And off she runs. And Claudius says, follow her close. Give her good watch, I pray you. He tells Horatio to follow her close behind. He doesn't want to lose anyone else. Give her good watch. Keep watch over her. I pray you. I ask you. And notice that we're back in verse now. Claudius is trying to get order back into this scene. And he turns to Gertrude and says, Oh, this is the poison of deep grief. It springs all from her father's death. I love those long E sounds of deep grief. It springs. In other words, it arises almost like a spring of water comes up through the ground. All from her father's death. Well, yeah, maybe. It probably also arises from all the crappy stuff you did to her. And he says to Gertrude, Oh, Gertrude... Gertrude, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. This is a really specific image. 
Single spies are like lone soldiers that you send ahead of the rest of the army to do reconnaissance. So he's saying to her that when bad things happen, there aren't just one or two of them right ahead of the army. They come in battalions. There's like a whole army division of sorrows. And then he's going to list the battalions. First, her father slain. Yeah, her father was killed. That's the first one. Next, your son gone, and he most violent author of his own just remove. So next, Hamlet is gone, and he most violent author. Author in this case, not like he's written something, but that he was the one who caused his own just remove. His own deserved sending away with his violence. The people muddied, thick and unwholesome in their thoughts and whispers for good Polonius's death. And we have done but greenly and hugger-mugger to inter him. And now he's describing the political side of this. The people, the common people, muddied, thick, and unwholesome. You can just picture muddied almost as though you have a clear spring of water or a fountain and you stir it up so all the mud starts to get into the water and it gets cloudy. Thick, which means sort of confused or suspicious, and unwholesome, which literally means unhealthy or infected, as though they've been infected with these doubts and suspicions. And they're all stirred up in their thoughts and whispers for good Polonius's death. In other words, about Polonius's death. So clearly, there are lots of rumors spreading throughout the kingdom, and he's trying very hard to control them. And he says, we have done but greenly. We sometimes still talk about it like a greenhorn or someone who's acting green amateurishly, like an inexperienced ruler. In hugger-mugger, I love this term. It means kind of secretively or confusedly, but you really get the sense of awkwardness and amateurishness to this word hugger-mugger, to inter him, to bury him. So we kind of screwed up the burial too, because they had to do it in secret or people would have even more suspicions. And more sorrows? Poor Ophelia divided from herself and her fair judgment, without the which we are pictures or mere beasts. So Ophelia has been divided from herself, in other words, separated from her true self, from her sane self, and her fair judgment. Fair meaning good, but it also has that sense of sane. Without the witch, without this judgment, we are pictures. In other words, we're all outsides, we're all exterior appearance, or mere beasts. Mere had a totally different meaning at that time, it meant completely or totally. So without our reason, we're all exterior appearances or even animals. Last, and as much containing as all these, her brother is in secret, come from France, feeds on his wonder, keeps himself in clouds, and wants not buzzers to infect his ear with pestilent speeches of his father's death, wherein necessity of matter beggared will nothing stick our person to arraign in ear and ear. So this is the worst part. The last thing, and as much containing as all of these. So in other words, comprising or entailing as much as all of these things put together. Her brother is secretly come home from France. Uh-oh. Remember Laertes? He's not going to be happy about this feeds on his wonder. This is a really awesome phrase. It's a way of saying that he survives on nothing but his shock at what happened, as though he doesn't eat anything except his grief. It's another way to say he thinks of nothing but his father's death. He keeps himself in clouds, another beautiful image, as though he can't see the truth because he's so surrounded by suspicions and rumors like a cloud, and wants not buzzers. You probably understand buzzers. It's people who are buzzing in his ear, like rumor mongers or troublemakers. He wants not buzzers. He doesn't lack any of these guys. To infect his ear with pestilent speeches. Pestilent meaning infectious or diseased. So his ear is being infected with their words about his father's death. And he goes on about these buzzers. He says, we're in necessity. Like they necessarily, of matter beggared. In other words, since they lack substance or facts, Will nothing stick? They won't hesitate our person to arraign, to accuse us, to accuse me, in other words, in ear and ear, in every ear, to anyone who will listen. So where there's a lack of facts, all he's going to get is rumors about how Claudius was responsible. And that's the worst part for Claudius because it affects him directly. He says, oh, my dear Gertrude, this, like to a murdering piece, in many places gives me superfluous death. A murdering piece is a cannon or a gun that's loaded with a lot of shrapnel to kill as many people as possible. 
and maybe you've heard the word superfluous before, it means excessive or over the top, because this murdering piece shoots you full of projectiles, any one of which would kill him, but instead this onslaught of attacks gives him superfluous death. So any one of these terrible things would be bad, but the experience is like being shot full of projectiles. Like once you've been shot the first time, you don't need the other 50,000 shots. And that's the superfluous death he's talking about. And as if on cue, we hear a noise outside, and Gertrude says, Alack, what noise is this? And Claudius thinks he knows exactly what it is. He says, where are my Switzers? Switzers is another name for the Swiss Guard. They're the people who guard Vatican City. They were sort of the most famous mercenary guards around. So basically he's calling up his best guards to come right to him. He knows he's under attack. He says, let them guard the door. And then a guy comes right in. And Claudius says, what is the matter? And the man jumps right into his line. He says, save yourself, my lord. The ocean overpeering of his list eats not the flats with more impetuous haste than young Laertes in a riotous head overbears your officers. So not even the ocean overpeering of his list, which means overflowing its natural boundaries, eats not the flats. The flats being the sort of flat lands next to the shore with more impetuous haste than young Laertes in a riotous head. Riotous being like uncontrollable or rioting. And then a head is like a group of insurgents or bears your officers, overcomes or overwhelms your officers. So he's comparing the way that Laertes and his crew are mowing down the officers outside to the way that the ocean eats the land next to it. This doesn't sound good. The man says, the rabble call him Lord. Rabble being another word for mob or the sort of loosely organized group. So they call him Lord. They call him their leader. And as the world were now but to begin, antiquity forgot, custom not known, the ratifiers and props of every word, they cry, choose we, Laertes shall be king. So as the world were now but to begin, as if the world were just about to begin, about to be created, antiquity forgot, you know, forgetting about the ancient history of respecting the place of a king or how he's elected in the first place, custom not known, not knowing the way things are usually done, and then this parenthetical that antiquity and custom are the ratifiers and props of every word, ratifiers being the things that validate or sanction things, and props, not like stage props, things that support things, things that prop them up almost like the legs of a table. That's what antiquity and custom do for a society. So forgetting all of those things, they cry, choose we, like we choose, Laertes shall be king. Almost as though he's the first king who's ever been elected at the beginning of time. And they're forgetting about the fact that Denmark has a king. He goes on, caps, hands, and tongues applaud it to the clouds. Laertes shall be king, Laertes king. So caps that you sort of toss in the air or wave in celebration, hands, clapping hands, and tongues, their words applaud it to the clouds. So those sounds are going up to the sky. And what are they saying? That they want Laertes to be king. And we hear them outside again. And then we hear a very political thing from Gertrude. She says, how cheerfully on the false trail they cry. Cry in this case means to bark like a pack of hunting dogs on an animal's scent. So it's as though a pack of dogs has gotten the wrong scent and they're chasing it down excitedly. And that's what she says is happening here, that they think it's Claudius' fault, so they're running right after him, too fast to think about it. And she goes on, oh, this is counter, you false Danish dogs. Counter meaning backwards or the wrong way around, like you're attacking the wrong guy. So they've been on the false trail, now they're false Danish dogs. False meaning wrong in the first sentence, but here meaning something more like treacherous or traitors. And she calls them dogs, again referring to the hunting metaphor in the first sentence. And then Claudius says, the doors are broke. They've made it all the way through into the chamber. And in storms Laertes with his mob. He says, where is this king? Doesn't sound like he's very fond of Claudius at that moment. And then he turns to his followers and say, sirs, stand you all without. Without just meaning outside. Everybody go outside. And they don't want to hear that. They say, no, let's come in. But Laertes lays down the law. He says, I pray you give me leave. In other words, give me permission to go talk with the king for a second here. And they agree. They say, we will, we will. Actors from time immemorial have had a great time playing the rabble in this scene. They get to say lots of things under their breath. And he thanks them. He says, I thank you. Keep the door. 
In other words, guard the door from people who are trying to save the king. He wants to be alone. And then he turns on Claudius. He says, oh, thou vile king, give me my father. Vile meaning terrible. And Gertrude is desperate to protect Claudius. She jumps right on him and says, calmly, good Laertes. In other words, be calm, good Laertes. And notice the parallel of vile king and good Laertes. She's trying to ratchet down the emotions in the room. This is not her first political rodeo, this one. But Laertes isn't having it. He says, that drop of blood that's calm proclaims me bastard. Cries cuckold to my father, brands the harlot, even here between the chaste, unsmirched brows of my true mother. So he takes that calmly as his cue and says, if even one drop of blood is calm, it proclaims me bastard. That proves that he wasn't actually his father's son, because what son would be unwilling to revenge his father's death? So if I'm calm at all, I'm not my father's real son. It cries cuckold to my father. It calls my father a man who's been cheated on. It brands the harlot. I think we've seen this before, that there was this rumor that prostitutes were supposed to be branded on their foreheads. They probably weren't, but it just refers to the sense of a person that you get from their face. So it marks as a harlot, even here between the chaste, unsmirched brows. Chaste meaning faithful, especially sexually pure, and unsmirched meaning unstained by the sin of adultery. And the brows, again, a reference to the forehead. It was that idea you could tell a person's morality from their face. So it calls his mother a harlot, a prostitute. But he refers to her as his true mother, his good mother, his faithful mother. And then we get to see Claudius the operator, because he jumps right onto the end of Laertes' verse line and says, What is the cause, Laertes, that thy rebellion looks so giant-like? He's calm. He's surprisingly calm. I like this term giant-like, almost as though it's acting big. Also in Greek mythology, there was this myth that the Titans, who were these giants, had rebelled against the rule of their father. But either way, it's like, why all this noise? Why so much storm and drawing about this rebellion of yours? And Gertrude, meanwhile, is pretty desperate to keep Laertes away from the king, but Claudius turns to her and says, let him go, Gertrude. Do not fear our person. In other words, don't be afraid for my safety. There's such divinity to hedge a king that treason can but peep to what it would. Acts little of his will. There's such divinity, there's such a divine protection, because there was this belief that the right to rule was given by God, doth hedge a king. Hedge meaning to shield or encircle and protect, sort of like a hedge circles a garden. So such a divine protection around a king that treason can but peep to what it would. So someone who's acting treasonously, in other words, trying to kill the king, can only get a glimpse at what it wants to do, and it acts little of his will. It doesn't actually do most of the things it would like to do. He's certainly confident. He turns back to Laertes and says, Tell me, Laertes, why thou art thus incensed. Again, he's just bringing the temperature of the room down. He's trying to be as reasonable as possible, because Laertes is totally emotional. He says, Just tell me why you're so angry. And he says it again, Let him go, Gertrude. I don't need your protection, woman. He says, speak, man. And Laertes meets him on his terms. He says, where is my father? And then Claudius is totally blunt. He says, dead. And Gertrude, of course, jumps right in. She says, but not by him. In other words, he wasn't killed by Claudius. But Claudius doesn't want her to intrude. He says, let him demand his fill. In other words, let him ask enough to satisfy him. And notice how each of these lines is very short. They all add up to verse lines. But this is a very quick, brisk exchange, with each one jumping into the other one's line. But Laertes is starting to run out of patience. He says, how came he dead? In other words, how did he become dead? I'll not be juggled with. Not juggling in our sense, but I won't be deceived. I won't be tricked. Then he starts to get angry again. He says, to hell allegiance, vows to the blackest devil, conscience and grace to the profoundest pit. So whatever allegiance he had to the king or anyone else, he wants that to go to hell. And he vows he's sworn they should go to the blackest devil, the most evil devil. Conscience and grace conscience doing what's right that thing that made a coward of hamlet and grace which is god's favor which is freely given to all even sinners he wants to throw that all away to the profoundest pit in other words the deepest darkest pit of hell and he ends with i dare damnation in other words i'm prepared to risk going to hell which he would if he killed claudius 
Notice, by the way, that everything he says is almost an implicit critique of Hamlet. The specific reason that Hamlet was afraid to kill Claudius is what would happen to his soul. Hamlet doesn't dare damnation. If anything, things like allegiance and vows and conscience and grace are the very reasons why Hamlet doesn't kill him. But Laertes is ready to throw that all out. And he says, to this point I stand, that both the worlds I give to negligence. So I stand firm on just this one point, that both the worlds, in other words, this world and the afterlife, I give to negligence, which is to say he doesn't care about the consequences for them. He'll throw them all away. Let come what comes. Let whatever happens happen. Only I'll be revenged most thruly for my father. Thruly is just an archaic way of saying thoroughly. So he doesn't care what happens next. All that matters to him is being revenged for his father. Again, a huge contrast with Hamlet. And Claudius jumps right on the end of his line to interrupt him. He says, who shall stay you? Like, who's going to stop you or prevent you? No one's arguing for that. And Laertes answers, my will, not all the world. The only thing that can stop me is when I want to stop me. Not all the world, not anything else. Notice the alliteration of will and world. And he thinks of one thing that could stop him. He says, and for my means, I'll husband them so well they shall go far with little. So as for my means, as for the money and supplies I need for my rebellion, I'll husband them so well, I'll manage them so wisely and economically, they shall go far with little. Like I can wait you out. Even though I only have a little bit, I'll manage it really well. So if you think you're going to get out of it by waiting me out, it's not going to work. And Claudius finishes his line again because he sees Laertes getting off on a little bit of a tangent. He says, good Laertes, if you desire to know the certainty of your dear father's death, is written your revenge that swoops take you will draw both friend and foe, winner and loser? So if you desire to know the certainty, if you want to know the truth or the facts of your dear father's death, is it written your revenge, literally meaning written down, but meaning is it necessary for, is it essential to your revenge that swoopstake, this is where the word sweepstake comes from, this is that part in the game of poker where there's all these chips in the middle and then someone wins and they put their arms around the pile and they draw it back to them because you're swooping in what was at stake. So just like that, you will draw both friend and foe, winner and loser. Draw meaning sweep up like those gambling winnings. Because when you do that, you get a lot of different people's chips. So what this image is saying is, is it really important to Laertes' revenge that he take down his friend and his enemy, the winners and the losers? In other words, lots of innocent people may get taken along with this. Laertes is maybe a little confused, but he says none but his enemies. In other words, I don't want to kill anyone except for Polonius' enemies. And this is exactly what Claudius has been waiting for. He says, will you know them then? Will you at least know who those enemies are before you go killing? And now he's won over Laertes, who says, to his good friends, thus wide I'll open my arms, and like the kind life-rendering pelican, repass them with my blood. To anyone who's actually a good friend of his, I'll open my arms this wide to them. You know, he'll welcome them and he'll embrace them. And like the kind life-rendering pelican, this is really weird. For many years around this time, they believed that the pelican fed its young with its own blood. Not entirely sure why they thought that, but that's the image he's calling on. He says he'll repast to them with my blood. Repast meaning he'll feed them with his own blood. That's how devoted he'll be to Polonius' true friends. And this is great news because Claudius thinks he's one of those friends. Notice again, this is maybe the fourth or fifth time he's done this. He finishes Laertes' line. He stays in control of this dialogue. He says, why now you speak like a good child and a true gentleman. You hear those long stressed syllables of good child and true gentleman? He's emphasizing and slowing down this conversation. A gentleman is a nobleman, so there were ways you were expected to speak. So like now you're being a really good child and you're behaving as you should. And now that he's gotten Laertes calmer, he gives him the real information. He says, That I am guiltless of your father's death and am most sensibly in grief for it. It shall as level to your judgment pierce as day does to your eye. So the fact that I'm innocent of killing your father and am most sensibly, most feelingly, most intensely grieving for his death 
it shall as level as plainly or honestly or straightforwardly we have that expression on the level it shall as level to your judgment pierce which here means seem or appear some editions even have the word being peer as though it's short for appear so these facts will appear as level to your judgment as honest to your judgment as day does to your eye so as obvious or direct as your eye knowing when it's day this is a really masterful political move by claudius he just put down a rebellion with his words and nothing else but suddenly there's a wild card entering the scene that blows up all his hard work because we hear outside let her come in and laertes hears that and says how now what noise is that and wouldn't you know it's ophelia she comes in and she's clearly not right he sees her and he starts to fall apart he says oh heat dry up my brains maybe the heat of his emotion for her dry up my brains in other words make me go insane too tears seven times salt burn out the sense and virtue of mine eye so he's wishing for tears seven times saltier than normal to burn out the sense in other words the ability to see and virtue meaning the powers or functioning of his eye so this is such a painful sight that he doesn't want to be able to see anymore and this infuriates him he says by heaven thy madness shall be paid by weight till our scale turn the beam so I swear by heaven that thy madness, your insanity, shall be paid by weight. Paid meaning paid back. And the image here is of a scale. So he's going to pay back with the same weight of her madness till our scale turn the beam. Our scale, in other words, the pan of the scale on our side, turn the beam, makes the cross beam between those pans tip the other way. So if her madness is that heavy, his revenge is going to be even heavier and turn the scale around. It almost sounds like he wants to over-revenge for her madness. And then he says, O oh, Rose of May. Remember how when Ophelia saw Hamlet going crazy, she referred to him as the Rose of the Fair State? It's a similar comparison that Laertes makes here. The May Rose is young, just blooming, as though she was just becoming a person. That she was this young, beautiful woman who was just in a state of blooming. And he says, Dear maid, kind sister, sweet Ophelia. It's a kind of list of qualities and names for her, each one a little different. Oh heavens, is possible a young maid's wits should be as mortal as an old man's life? So is it even possible that the sanity of a young woman can die as easily as the life of an old man? This is a very specific rhetorical comparison. You have the young versus the old, the maid versus the man, and the wits versus the life. The old man's life, obviously, is the death of Polonius. And then he elaborates on this with a very strange poetic comparison. He says, Nature is fine in love, and where tis fine, it sends some precious instance of itself after the thing it loves. This is a really difficult piece of language, but here's how I read it. Nature is fine in love. In other words, nature is refined or made kind of ethereal by love. So much so that some of the nature almost becomes powdered and floats away. And where it is fine, it sends some precious instance of itself. An instance is like a sample or a token after the thing it loves. So it's as though Ophelia loved her father so much that a little part of her took to the air and chased after the object that she loved. In other words, her father when he left. So she sent some of her wits away chasing after his life. And again, she's singing. They bore him barefaced on the beer. Hey, nanny, 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 hey, nanny. And in his grave rained many a tear. Fare you well, my dove. It's another song of mourning. They bore him barefaced. In other words, they carried him without a coffin or any covering, like you usually have for a funeral, on the bier, which is a kind of stretcher that the dead body is on. And it may refer to the way that this was kind of a cheapo funeral. And then that weird, hey, nan, nani, nani, hey, nani, which is usually the refrain of like a happy song or dance. So it's a little confusing in such a sad song. And in his grave rained many a tear. Remember the true love showers she sang about earlier in the scene? Fare you well, my dove. Goodbye, my dove. And Laertes is still shattered. He says, 
Hadst thou thy wits and did persuade revenge, it could not move thus. So if you still had your sanity and did persuade revenge and was calling for revenge for Polonius with your reason, it could not move thus. It would not be as moving as this. It would not be as inspiring as this, your madness. And Ophelia brings prose back into the scene. And she turns to her brother and says, you must sing a down, a down, and you call him a downa. It's kind of a corny joke, actually. A down, a down is sort of like, hey, nani, nani. It's another one of these happy song refrains. And you call him a downa means if you call him down to his grave. But she's making a little joke on a down, a down. Oh, how the wheel becomes it. The wheel is another way to say the refrain of the song. And becomes it means fits it. It's appropriate to it because of the down nature of it. So she's kind of pleased about this terrible joke she's made. And he says, this nothing's more than matter. In other words, this nonsense is much more eloquent than most really sensible speech. Remember what they talked about earlier, that people were reading things into her nonsense words? Well, clearly Laertes is doing exactly that. This is exactly what the king was trying to avoid. And then she has one more non sequitur. She says, it is the false steward that stole his master's daughter. False meaning treacherous or disloyal, and steward is like the chief servant of a house. So it would be a really disloyal servant that steals his master's daughter. Is she referring to Polonius or Hamlet? It's still pretty unclear. And then Ophelia starts doing this strange thing. She starts distributing flowers. Although in some productions, they aren't flowers. There's some other random weird thing that she is mistaken for flowers in her madness. And she says, there's rosemary. That's for remembrance. Rosemary, by the way, was often used symbolically at funerals, almost as though she's distributing flowers for her father's funeral. And she says to him, pray you love, remember. Which I'm sure he takes to mean, remember my insanity and remember your father's death. And then she says, and there's pansies. That's for thoughts. This is a flower usually associated with the thoughts of love. It comes from the French word pensée, which means thoughts. And Laertes says, a document in madness, almost as though she's a textbook example of insanity. Thoughts and remembrance fitted. Fitted means corresponding, as though she's taking these two unrelated things, rosemary and pansies, and put them together, and it turns out that thoughts and remembrance are actually related. And then she goes around distributing other flowers, and it's really up to the production to decide who gets what flowers. Some of these can have very deep meaning for the characters. She turns to someone else and says, there's fennel for you and columbines. Fennel was usually the symbol of flattery and columbines were the symbol of infidelity or ingratitude. So who could those be for? Maybe the king? And then she says, there's rue for you and here's some for me. Rue was usually a symbol of repentance. Rue was also another way to say regret. So maybe that's for the queen. I don't know. Because Ophelia gets some of it herself too, as though they all need to repent. And there's that kind of fun rhyme of rue and you. And then she adds, we may call it herb of grace on Sundays. So on Sundays, when we go to church, we have another name for it, which is herb of grace. And then she adds, oh, you must wear your rue with a difference. So on a family coat of arms, with a difference means that it has a symbol that differentiates the person who owns that coat of arms from the main family line. Like if you're a cousin, for example, then there's a slight change in your coat of arms. And she keeps distributing. She says, there's a daisy. Daisies could be a symbol of unrequited love. They could also be a symbol of transformation. And then she apologizes. She says, I would give you some violets, but they withered all when my father died. Violets are usually a symbol of fidelity. But remember that Laertes used them in Act 1, Scene 3 when he was talking to her to refer to something that lasts only briefly before it dies. It has this beautiful smell and appearance, and then it withers almost instantly. And that's how she uses it, that they withered all when her father died. And she concludes, they say he made a good end. Unfortunately, he clearly did not make a good end. And then sort of obliviously, she goes on singing, For Bonnie Sweet Robin is all my joy. This is a line, by the way, from a very famous English song. And this actually disturbs Laertes even more. He says, thought and affliction, passion, hell itself. She turns to favor and to prettiness. So thought meaning worry or anxiety and affliction, suffering. Passion, in other words, strong emotion. Hell itself, the worst possible things. She turns to favor. 
In other words, gracefulness into prettiness, pleasantness. So she takes the death of her father and starts singing a song. And she keeps singing. And will he not come again? And will he not come again? No, no, he is dead. Go to thy deathbed. He never will come again. His beard was as white as snow. All flaxen was his pole. He was gone, he is gone, and we cast away moan. God a mercy on his soul. And of all Christian souls, I pray God. Come again means to return. So it's actually a very sad song about a dead person. Will he not return? No, he is dead. He's never going to return. His beard was as white as snow, which seems to be a reference to Polonius. All flaxen was his pole. Flaxen means as white as flax. It's a very, very bright yellow color, almost white. Was his pole, which is another way of saying head. That's why when we poll people, it's like taking a head count. That's where that comes from. He is gone, he is gone, and we cast away moan. Cast away almost gives you a sense of wasting it. Moan being mourning lamentations over him. So he's gone already. We may just be wasting our moans. God of mercy, in other words, God have mercy on his soul. And after that, she thinks, and of all Christian souls, on everybody, I pray God. And then she says to them, God be with you. Sure, for God be with you, but also the source of goodbye. She just says goodbye to everyone and leaves. It's a shattering visit for everyone, even for us, to watch this intelligent, in-control young person blown to bits. And it's so different from Hamlet's madness, too, which was demonstrative and witty and kind of a jerk. This is just someone who's been melted down. At the same time, though, she's free to say things to people in a way that she never was when she was sane and behaving like such a good person. And Laertes is a mess. He says, do you see this, O God? Almost as though he's specifically asking God, how could you let this happen? And Ophelia's visit has completely blown up Claudius's plan, and he has to jump right back in to make sure he can manage this situation. And how does he do it? In verse, of course, because he's trying to bring order back. He comes right up to Laertes and says, Laertes, I must commune with your grief, or you deny me right. I must commune with. In other words, I have to share in your grief, or you deny me my right. And he says, go but apart, make choice of whom your wisest friends you will, and they shall hear and judge twixt you and me. Again, he's thinking of himself again. He's still worried about this rebellion. Go but apart. In other words, go off to some private place. Make choice of whom your wisest friends you will. In other words, choose whichever of your friends you want, whichever you think the smartest ones are, and they shall hear and judge twixt you and me. In other words, between you and me. And what are they going to judge? His guilt. So he goes on. If by direct or collateral hand they find us touched, we will our kingdom give, our crown, our life, and all that we call ours to you in satisfaction. So if by direct hand, in other words, if I actually killed him with my own hand, or collateral hand, in other words, indirect or accessory hand, like if I hired somebody to kill him, if by those they find us touched, touched meaning implicated, then we will our kingdom give, our crown, our life, and all that we call ours, everything that belongs to us, to you in satisfaction. Satisfaction being like compensation or payback. And he concludes, but if not, be you content to lend your patience to us, and we shall jointly labor with your soul to give it due content. But if not, but if they find me not guilty, Be you content, be satisfied to lend your patience to us. Not give your patience to us, just lend it to us for a little while. And we shall jointly labor. We'll work together with your soul. So Claudius and his soul are going to be partners in this job to give it due content. To give it the content that's owed to it. In other words, making sure that his father is revenged. And you can see that word content both at the beginning and the end of that line. So if Laertes is content to lend his patience to Claudius, Claudius will give Laertes' soul its due content. So it's a trade of content for content. And Laertes agrees so much that he finishes Claudius' line. He says, let this be so. It's like, yeah, thank you. This is a moment of extreme weakness for Laertes. And he's really glad that someone steps in to tell him what to do. And he's still bugged by this. He says, his means of death... His obscure funeral, no trophy, sword, nor hatchment, or his bones, no noble right, nor formal ostentation, cry to be heard, as t'were from heaven to earth, that I must call in question. So his means of death, the way he died, 
his obscure funeral, obscure meaning secret or sort of hush-hush, and then this parenthetical about the funeral, no trophy, trophy being like a memorial or a monument, sword, nor hatchment. A hatchment is a display of the family coat of arms. So basically there hasn't been any marker put on his grave to show that this was Polonius. No noble rite, nor formal ostentation, an ostentation being a ceremony or a ritual. So he was buried without the honors that any Christian would deserve, let alone someone this important. So all those things cry to be heard as twere from heaven to earth, as twere being short for as if it were, like they seemingly cry to be heard all the way from heaven to earth, so much so that I must call it in question, which just means that he feels he has to investigate this. And Claudius does this thing again where he jumps on the end of his line to keep control. He says, so you shall, and where the offense is, let the great axe fall. So wherever the true sin is, the person who really did this, let the great axe fall. This is the great axe of justice or punishment, maybe not literally a great axe, although I guess you got to execute them somehow. Again, Claudius is trying to make really clear that the person who should suffer this is the person who did it, which is not Claudius. Even though you could argue that Claudius was meddling so much that it put Polonius in that position, which is probably why he's so eager to keep his name out of it. And he takes Laertes with him and he says, I pray you, go with me. I ask you, go along with me. Because he has something important to talk to him about. So this is obviously a series of terrible tragedies. And Claudius realizes that what he has to do is find a way to turn this to his own political advantage. Laertes could be a weapon, in other words. And that's what we're going to see in two scenes. But this play is called Hamlet, not Laertes and Ophelia. How's that guy doing anyway? So if you were wondering at this point what's up with Hamlet, Act 4, Scene 6 is for you. And when you need a little exposition layered into this play, well, that's why we have Horatio around. Because we have this little scene in prose that's going to fill us in on what's happening with Hamlet. Horatio comes in with some servant and says, What are they that would speak with me? Evidently, someone wants to speak to Horatio. And the servant says, Seafaring men, sir. So they're sailors. They say they have letters for you. And Horatio says, Let them come in. Because that news can only mean one thing. He goes on to say, I do not know from what part of the world I should be greeted, if not from Lord Hamlet. Oh, Horatio, nobody likes you but Hamlet? Don't you have an aunt or an uncle or something? Greeted here means written to, not just someone saying hello to him. So if it isn't from Hamlet, there's almost no one else it could be from. And in come those seafaring men, and they say to him, God bless you, sir. Which is just sort of a generic greeting, especially for a more important person. And Horatio says back, let him bless thee too. Which is not usually a way you hear it. As in, may God bless you too. And the sailor shoots back, he shall, sir, and it please him. You'll sometimes see that little A there that's just a stand-in for he, especially from a lower-class character. And and it please him means if it pleases him. So if it pleases him to bless me, he will. Okay, enough cute greetings, guys. Now on to the letters. He says, there's a letter for you, sir. It comes from the ambassador that was bound for England, if your name be Horatio, as I am let to know it is. So it comes from the ambassador that was bound for England? Why don't they know who Hamlet is? We'll see when he actually reads the letter. And he says, this letter is for you, if in fact your name is Horatio, as I am let to know, as I'm told it is. And then Horatio reads the letter, out loud, conveniently for us in the audience. This is when you'd have a voiceover if it was a movie or TV show. And Horatio reads, Horatio, when thou shalt have overlooked this, give these fellows some means to the king. Today we usually use overlooked to mean misplaced or missed, but here it means looked over, like read this. Give these fellows some means to the king means like access to the king. And why? Because they have letters for him. It turns out they're letters from Hamlet to the king. And now he goes on to tell the story of what happened to him. Ere we were two days old at sea, a pirate of very warlike appointment gave us chase. What a pirate! So, ere we were two days old at sea, in other words, before we had been at sea for even two days, a pirate of very warlike appointment gave us chase. They aren't being chased by one giant pirate. In this case, a pirate is another name for a pirate ship. A very warlike appointment, appointment meaning equipment or furnishing, like it was all done up with war implements, with cannons and armed men, gave us chase. We were chased by them. Now you may be asking yourselves at this point, a pirate ship? Isn't this supposed to be the greatest play ever written? 
Yeah, it's a really good play. Just keep in mind that Shakespeare really likes using things like pirates to get out of corners he may have painted himself into. He does this in a few different plays. It's his favorite deus ex machina. But look, Hamlet needs to get back to England somehow or the play's over. So pirates it is. So their ship is chased down by pirates. And he says, finding ourselves too slow of sail, we put on a compelled valor. And in the grapple, I boarded them. So too slow of sail, the pirate ship was faster than them. They couldn't outrun it. So we put on a compelled valor. Valor is just another word for bravery. And what was it compelled by? By the bad circumstances they were in, with a pirate ship chasing them. So they had to put this on, sort of like pretend to have it, or take it on for this one occasion. And in the grapple, which is where the pirate ship throws all its hooks and lines over and tries to board Hamlet's ship, I boarded them. So maybe he runs across one of the ropes, I don't know. And what happened then? On the instant, they got clear of our ship, so I alone became their prisoner. On the instant, at the very moment he got onto their ship, was the moment the ship separated again. So he was the only one who became their prisoner, conveniently enough. They have dealt with me like thieves of mercy, but they knew what they did. Of mercy just means merciful. So they may have been thieves, but they were actually merciful to me. But they knew what they did. So they knew they had an important person on board. They probably didn't know it was Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. He just sold himself as the ambassador from Denmark to England. And because they knew what they did, he says, I am to do a good turn for them. A turn like a favor in return for them not chopping off his head. Let the king have the letters I have sent, and repair thou to me with as much speed as thou wouldst fly death. So give the king my letters, and then repair, not like car repair, but you come to me with as much speed as you would use to run away from death. That's a lot of speed. Nobody likes death. And then he ends it with a real kicker. I have words to speak in thine ear will make thee dumb. Yet they are much too light for the bore of the matter. So I'm going to say some things in your ear that will make you dumb. In other words, speechless from the shock they cause. And yet those words are much too light for the bore of the matter. Light meaning small or minor or unimportant for the bore of the matter. Bore is another way to say the importance of the matter. Literally, it's another way to say caliber, since the bore of a cannon or a gun is the inside of the barrel, so it's the centermost thing. So as crazy as these words are, they're not even strong enough to talk about this matter. Must be a big deal. These good fellows will bring thee where I am. So the sailors know where he's hidden, and they'll bring Horatio to him. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern hold their course for England. So they continue on their journey to England, probably sitting in that boat thinking, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap, we just lost him. What's Claudius going to do when we get back? As we'll see later, that's not going to be as big of a concern for them as they think it is. And Hamlet leaves enigmatically on, of them I have much to tell thee. I have a lot to say to you about these guys. Farewell, he that thou knowest thine, Hamlet. He that thou knowest thine means him that you know to be yours. It's sort of a strong way of signing a letter, yours, Hamlet. And obviously Horatio's interest is piqued because he says to the men, Come, I will give you way for these your letters, and do it the speedier that you may direct me to him from whom you brought them. I'll give you way, I'll give you a means of access to Claudius for these your letters. And do it the speedier, do it as fast as you can, so that you can direct me to the person you brought the letters from. In other words, Hamlet. Another really short scene in Act 4. We're still getting a sense of things rushing forward. So now we know Ophelia's gone crazy, Laertes is furious, and Claudius is trying to take that fury and direct it right at Hamlet. And as if on cue, we learn that Hamlet is on his way back. This smells of a showdown. But before that, we have one more scene left in Act 4. Act 4, Scene 7. And we enter mid-conversation again. This is apparently what happened when the king and Laertes left the last scene. And notice we're back in verse again, because this is Claudius's attempt to keep everything really orderly, to plan and plot. And the first thing we hear from him to Laertes is, Now must your conscience my acquittance seal, and you must put me in your heart for friend. Sith you have heard, and with a knowing ear, that he which hath your noble father slain pursued my life. Now your conscience, Laertes, must seal my acquittance, must confirm my innocence, like if you were acquitted of a crime. And you must put me in your heart for friend. Again, look how simple that is. All monosyllable words. And it's not, you must be my friend. 
you must put me in your heart for friend, as a friend. Why? Sith you have heard, since you have heard, and with a knowing ear, knowing meaning perceptive or discerning. Way to butter him up, Claudius, that he which hath your noble father slain pursued my life, in other words, was trying to kill me too. So evidently, over this break between scenes, Claudius has laid out all his evidence to Laertes that it was Hamlet who killed Polonius, and also that Hamlet wants to kill Claudius too. And just to show how much in agreement these guys are now, Laertes finishes his verse line. He says, it well appears. In other words, it certainly looks that way. But he goes on, but tell me why you proceeded not against these feats so crimeful and so capital in nature, as by your safety, wisdom, all things else, you mainly were stirred up. So he's convinced that Hamlet did it, but he has one more question. Why didn't you proceed? Why didn't you take legal action against these feats, against these deeds? So crimeful. I love that word, crimeful. It's not even a real word. The word is criminal, but crimeful is so much more fun to say. And capital, capital like capital punishment, punishable by death, in other words. So why didn't you take action against these terrible deeds by Hamlet? As by your safety, since because of your own personal safety, your wisdom, here meaning something like your political judgment, all things else, all other things, you mainly, mainly meaning strongly or greatly, were stirred up, which means like urged on. Since you had such a strong personal stake in this, why didn't you do anything? And Claudius explains, oh, for two special reasons, which may to you perhaps seem much unsinewed, but yet to me they are strong. So again, Claudius finishes his verse line, but notice what happens to this complete line. You mainly were stirred up, oh, for two special reasons. Notice how long it is. It's like three syllables too long, almost as though their lines overlap. So for two special reasons, two particular reasons I didn't act, which may to you perhaps seem much unsinewed. Much unsinewed means very weak, but it's a far stronger image than that. Unsinewed means like a muscle with no tendons in it. So they may seem like weak reasons to you, but yet to me they are strong. So he has to explain why he didn't just execute this guy himself. He says, the queen his mother lives almost by his looks. Oh, there it is. So for Gertrude, it's as though she survives only on kind looks from him, as though that's the only thing she eats. And for myself, my virtue or my plague, be it either which, she's so conjunctive to my life and soul that as the star moves not but in his sphere, I could not but by her. This is actually an extremely moving moment with the king. We've had a few personal insights with him, but we haven't seen that much about his love for Gertrude, and this is really revealing. So for myself, as for Claudius, my virtue or my plague, be it either which, be it either which meaning whichever one it is, like the best thing I do, or my plague, or my worst weakness, one of those two, she's so conjunctive, conjunctive coming from the word conjoined, almost like attached or closely associated to my life and soul, that as the star moves not but in his sphere... Remember this thing from earlier about how some astronomers used to think that all the stars were embedded in these crystal spheres encircling the Earth? Well, he's comparing himself to one of those stars and her to the crystal spheres it's embedded in. So just as a star can't move without its sphere moving, I could not butt by her. I couldn't move unless she moved. That's how close he feels to her. So that's his first reason for not killing Hamlet. And he goes on. The other motive why to a public count I might not go is the great love the general gender bear him, who, dipping all his faults in their affection, would, like the spring that turneth wood to stone, convert his jives to graces, so that my arrows, too slightly timbered for so loud a wind, would have reverted to my bow again, and not where I had aimed them. So reason number two, why to a public count, count is short for accounting, as in hold accountable, or even a trial. So the reason I can't have him held accountable in public is the great love the general gender bear him. So gender, not in the modern sense of male or female, but in the sense of people or the public. We use that same term, general public. It's a way to say the common people. But instead of saying common people, you get those fun J sounds of general gender. Bear him. Feel towards him. Oh, so he's very popular. 
We've heard the king with his complaint before. And he goes on to describe what the people do towards him. He says, they, he says, dipping all his faults in their affection. That's a really cool image. As those faults can be baptized, they can be dipped into a pool of the people's affection. And they would, like the spring that turneth wood to stone. You may have seen this in some mineral springs, especially ones that have a lot of calcium or lime in them. If you leave something in them for a while, that lime builds up and coats those objects. So they almost look as though they're made of stone. So that's the spring that turns wood to stone. So like that stone, they would convert his jives to graces. Jives is another way of saying his defects. But what it literally comes from is the word for shackles. Remember in Ophelia's description of Hamlet, where she talks about his stockings being down jived, almost like they're leg irons? So these are the defects that are shackling him. So their love converts these jives, these defects, to graces. In other words, good qualities. So if you dip a jive into their affection, it becomes a grace. And because of this love, Claudius says, My arrows too slightly timbered for so loud a wind? Slightly timbered means that they're made with shafts that are too light? For so loud a wind, for such a strong or harsh wind. Imagine if you were firing an arrow at a target in a hurricane. They would need to be made out of steel, or they would be blown right out of the air. And so Claudius is saying that all of his attempts at discipline would be swept away by the wind of the people's affection for Hamlet. And what would have happened to those arrows? They would have reverted to my bow again. Reverted meaning returned to or turned back at me. So it's not just that they miss Hamlet. They literally turn around and they hit Claudius. His own arrows do. So his attempts would literally have backfired. So he says they would have reverted to my bow again and not where I had aimed them. You know, at Hamlet. And see how short that line is? Not where I had aimed them. There's some missing feet there. It feels abrupt. So that's a very reasonable description of why he didn't do anything to Hamlet. But Laertes says, and so have I, a noble father lost. So your personal and political concerns are all well and good. But because you didn't take action sooner, I lost a noble father. And what else? A sister driven into desperate terms whose worth, if praises may go back again, stood challenger on mount of all the age for her perfections. He's had a sister driven into desperate terms, terms being conditions or circumstances. You see also those strong D sounds of driven and desperate. It reminds you of how harsh and terrible this was for him. A sister whose worth, if praises may go back again. In other words, if you can praise something from the past, because she's not that person anymore. He's praising the sane Ophelia, who he used to know. So if praises could go back again, she stood challenger on mount of all the age. This seems like an image from jousting or fighting. It's someone who shows up to present themselves for the championship, almost like a claimant on mount, which is literally on a mountain. But here it means high up for all to see, like a challenger who stands up to proclaim their candidacy of all the age, the age here being the time and specifically all other women in her time for her perfections. So it's as though her perfections were some of the finest of any woman of this time that she was living in. And then he breaks that line in half and he ends it with, but my revenge will come. So he got a little worked up at the king, but then he refocuses himself. He knows who the real enemy is. And Claudius says to him, break not your sleeps for that. Break not, like don't disturb your sleep for that. That being that you haven't taken your revenge yet. You must not think that we are made of stuff so flat and dull that we can let our beard be shook with danger and think it pastime. You can't think that we, in other words, me, the king, are made of stuff so flat and dull. Flat being like uninspired or unmotivated and dull we've heard Hamlet use. Like my dull revenge meaning slow or idle. So we're not that unmotivated that we can let our beard be shook with danger. I think this is such a cool image. Back in the day, grabbing someone's beard was seen as an insult to his manhood. Remember Hamlet had that speech after the Hecuba scene about someone plucking out his beard as an insult to him? So Claudius can't let his beard be shook. He can't let himself be insulted or threatened with danger. Danger here being the specific dangerous actions that Hamlet took and think it pastime. Yeah, it's not like I thought it was some game or this like fun lark when Hamlet was going after me. And then he says to him, you shortly shall hear more. 
Because remember, this guy has an ace up his sleeve. He sent Hamlet off to die. He is in total control of this situation. All he had to do was make sure that Laertes got calmed down. And when word comes from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that Hamlet is dead, he'll be able to show that to Laertes and say, here's your revenge. And he has to reassure him one more time. I loved your father and we love ourselves. So not only did I love Polonius, but I love myself too. And that I hope will teach you to imagine. Teach you to imagine meaning make sure you know. And here he's interrupted. What might he be going on to say? Maybe something like, that'll teach you to imagine that I would do whatever needed to be done. But hold on, a messenger comes in with letters. And the king's a little put out. He says, how now, what news? And the messenger says, letters, my lord, from Hamlet. But what? This to your majesty, this to the queen. This letter to you, this letter to her. Claudius is understandably flabbergasted here. He had an awesome plan. It was going to work out great. And all of a sudden there are letters from Hamlet? Presumably he needed his head on to write letters. And Claudius, trying to keep his emotions in check, says, From Hamlet? Who brought them? And the messenger says, Sailors, my lord, they say. I saw them not. They were given me by Claudio. He received them of him that brought them. Of him just means from him that brought them. This is this messenger's big moment. He gets to trace the paper trail for the king. But it's not super important. We'll never know who Claudio is. And Claudius has to read these letters. He's not even going to send Laertes away. He says to him, Laertes, you shall hear them. And then he turns to the messenger and says, leave us. And then he reads this very weird letter. He says, high and mighty, you shall know that I am set naked on your kingdom. High and mighty is a somewhat over-the-top way to address Claudius. Almost like he's making fun of him. You shall know I am set naked. Not literally naked. This can mean unarmed or without any possessions. But he's saying, I'm back on your land. Tomorrow shall I beg leave to see your kingly eyes, when I shall, first asking your pardon thereunto, recount the occasion of my sudden and more strange return. You can hear this really inflated courtier-style language in this letter. It's exactly the kind of letter that Claudius is always receiving and writing. So I beg leave, which means ask permission, to see your kingly eyes, when I shall, and then parenthetically, first asking your pardon thereunto. Pardon being another way to say permission. And permission to do what? Recount the occasion, tell the circumstances of my sudden and more strange return. How more strange? Even stranger than it is sudden. And he signs it Hamlet. And Claudius doesn't like this one bit. He says, what should this mean? Are all the rest come back? The rest being Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and anyone else who went with them. Or is it some abuse and no such thing? Abuse being like a trick or a hoax. And no such thing meaning that none of this is true. Maybe he sent a letter from far away just to mess with the king. By the way, did you see what Hamlet just did? He just sent a prose letter to the king. So even when he's far away, he's screwing with him. And the king, of course, whips that right back into verse. And Laertes asks, know you the hand? Hand being another way to say handwriting, which would be a way to tell if it was a trick. Like maybe he had Horatio write it for him. But no, Claudius says, tis Hamlet's character. Character meaning lettering or writing. Another way to say handwriting. Naked? Even that word freaks him out. And in a postscript here, he says, alone. Like, P.S. Alone which is a very charged word. Number one, it means that no one else is coming back with him, but it may also mean he feels alone in the world. I don't know. And he says to Laertes, can you advise me? Like he's really flummoxed here. Some additions, by the way, say devise me, which is another way to say explain. Can you explain this to me? But no, Laertes says, I am lost in it, my lord. Almost like someone who's lost in a maze. I'm totally perplexed by this. But that's fine by Laertes. He says, but let him come. It warms the very sickness in my heart that I shall live and tell him to his teeth Thus didst thou. You know what? Fine, let him come back. It warms the very sickness. Warms being another way to say it heals the sickness in my heart over his father and sister that I shall live and tell him to his teeth. In other words, to his face. Thus didst thou. You did this thing to my family. Some additions say, diest thou? Like, this is how you're going to die at my hand. They both sound cool. 
and Claudius's wheels are immediately spinning, because this is another thing he has to control. He says, If it be so, Laertes, as how should it be so? How otherwise? Will you be ruled by me? So if it be so, in other words, if Hamlet's return is really happening, as how should it be so? Like, how can it be happening? But how can it not be happening? Since we have this letter from him, he's still pretty shooken up. So if this is happening, will you be ruled by me? Now, obviously, Laertes is going to be ruled by him in the sense that he's the king of Denmark. But here it means, will you do as I say? Literally, will you be controlled by me? And Laertes says, I, my lord, so you will not overrule me to a piece. Like, yeah, I'll be ruled by you so long as you won't overrule me overrule me to a piece to make peace with hamlet and there's that cool transformation of ruled into overruled yeah i'll do whatever you want as long as it isn't making peace and claudius takes his peace as a cue and says to thine own peace like you don't have to make peace with him i'm gonna get you your own peace in other words your revenge and we see claudius is plotting ticking away in real time he says if he be now returned as checking at his voyage and that he means no more to undertake it I will work him to an exploit now ripe in my device, under the which he shall not choose but fall. So if he's returned now, as checking at, as a result of turning away from his voyage, like he never even got on the boat, and that he means no more to undertake it, if he intends not to go on it at all, I will work him, like I will persuade him or lead him to an exploit. An exploit being like a deed or an action, or even in this case, a plan, now ripe in my device, like a ripe fruit It's just become developed right now in my device, device like devising or planning, under the which, under the which plan, he shall not choose but fall. In other words, he won't even be able to choose. He'll have to fall, which is to say die. And he goes on. And for his death, no wind shall breathe, but even his mother shall uncharge the practice and call it accident. It's not a literal wind he's talking about. He's talking about whispering, rumors or accusations shall breathe, which is another way to say spoken. So there won't even be whispering about it. It'll be so clear so much so that even his mother shall uncharge the practice. You know how you can charge someone of a crime? Well, Gertrude will uncharge this one. She'll acquit Claudius of it. She'll believe it to be totally above board. The practice, in other words, the scheme or the plot, and call it accident. So this plan is going to look to everyone like it was just a terrible accident. And Laertes is excited. He jumps right into the end of the verse line. He says, My lord, I will be ruled. The rather, if you could devise it so that I might be the organ. So I'll do whatever you want. The rather, but even more so, if you could devise it so that I might be the organ. Organ like the means of killing him. Literally the instrument that does it. Like a bodily organ. And Claudius says to him, it falls right. Falls meaning it works out or it turns out right. And why does it fall right? Because he says, you have been talked of since your travel much, and that in Hamlet's hearing, for a quality wherein they say you shine. So since you went to France, they've been talking a lot about you and talking about you in Hamlet's hearing, his hearing range, basically, around Hamlet, for a quality, which means a skill or an ability, wherein they say you shine. So everyone, but especially Hamlet, have been hearing a lot about this thing you do very well. He says, your sum of parts did not together pluck such envy from him as did that one. So parts are gifts or accomplishments, things you do really well. So everything you do really well did not together, didn't, when they're added up all together, Pluck such envy from him. Pluck meaning elicit or provoke, but it's a much more alive-sounding verb. So not even all your good qualities put together evoked such envy from Hamlet as did that one quality. And he has this little postscript, and that in my regard of the unworthiest siege. My regard being my opinion of the unworthiest siege. Siege means importance. So I thought it was the least important quality, but Hamlet seemed to really dwell on it. And Laertes asks, what part is that, my lord? You know, what quality, what gift is that? A very ribboned in the cap of youth. Ribbon being like our word ribbon, almost like some little nothing decorative ribbon on a hat. Like you don't need it, it just makes you look cool. 
But he qualifies that. He says, Yet needful, too, for youth no less becomes the light and careless livery that it wears than settled age, his sables and his weeds, importing health and graveness. So it's necessary, too, for youth no less becomes, for it's no less appropriate for young people to wear the light and careless livery. Careless meaning not having a care in the world. And livery is another word for clothes, specifically the uniform. So it's just as appropriate for young people to wear their silly clothes as it is for settled age. Settled age being like calm and sober older people. His sables and his weeds. Sables are like rich fur cloaks, and weeds are just another way to say clothes. Importing health and graveness. Importing means signifying or communicating to the world. Health being prosperity, like you're doing all right, and graveness meaning seriousness and dignity. So when you're an older person, your clothes have to show how serious you are. But when you're a younger person, they should just show that you're having fun. So it's all right that this isn't a hugely important quality. Are we ever going to find out what it is? We'll see. But first, a story. Two months since, here was a gentleman of Normandy. So two months ago, there was a nobleman visiting the court from Normandy, from northern France. And Claudia says, I have seen myself and served against the French, and they can well on horseback, but this gallant had witchcraft in it. So I've seen the French, and not only have I seen them, I've served against them in war. And they can well on horseback. In other words, they can ride well on horseback. But this gallant, this fine gentleman, had witchcraft in it. The it in this case is horse riding. There was like a spell on his ability to ride a horse. And Claudius gets really caught up in this. He says, He grew unto his seat, and to such wondrous doing brought his horse, as he had been incorpsed and demi-natured with the brave beast. So grew unto his seat, almost like he grew into his seat, as if he became one with it. He became attached to his seat. Seat here either being his saddle or his mount in general. And to such wondrous doing, to such amazing actions or deeds, brought his horse as he had been encorpsed and demi-natured, as if he had been incorporated or fused, as though their bodies, their corpses, had been joined together and demi-natured. Demi-natured means half-natured, as though they were made to share a body like a centaur with the brave beast. Brave not brave in war, but meaning excellent or beautiful or worthy. So he was so good at riding the horse, it was as if it was one creature, not one controlling the other. And he says, So far he topped my thought that I, in forgery of shapes and tricks, come short of what he did. So he topped my thought, he exceeded my expectations so far that I, in forgery of shapes and tricks, in making up or imagining these poses and these tricks, come short of what he did. Don't even get close to describing what he actually did. So even if I were to make these things up, even some of the stuff he's already said doesn't come close to how good this guy was. And Laertes interrupts him. He says, a Norman was? He's like, you said it was a guy from Normandy. And Claudius says, a Norman. And Laertes realizes he knows the guy. He says, upon my life, la mort. Like, I swear by my life, it's this guy, Lamord. And Claudius says, the very same. That's great. Laertes says, I know him well. He is the brooch indeed and gem of all the nation. Brooch being another word for ornament, like that piece of jewelry you'd wear, and gem of all the nation, the jewel of the nation. So it's another way of describing him as the best of France. Like he decorates it with his abilities. And what does this have to do with anything? Claudius gets to it. He says, he made confession of you. Confession here is an acknowledgement of someone's abilities, not like confessing to a priest and gave you such a masterly report for art and exercise in your defense, and for your rapier most especially, that he cried out "'Twould be a sight indeed if one could match you." Masterly report like he reported to us that in his opinion you were a master at what? At art and exercise in your defense. Art is another way of saying skillfulness, and exercise is a way of saying ability. So in defense in general, in martial arts, and for your rapier most especially, and especially for your use of the rapier. Remember, this is the sword that Hamlet used to kill Polonius. It's a dueling sword used for stabbing. So he reported you were so good at rapier that he cried out, "'Twould be a sight indeed if one could match you. It would be amazing if anyone could match you at fencing." 
He goes on, the Scrimers of their nation, he swore, had neither motion, guard, nor eye if you opposed them. Scrimers is another word for fencers or sword fighters. So he swore that they had neither motion, motion being the ability to attack, guard being the ability to defend, nor eye, which is just the ability to see the opponent's moves in general, if you opposed them, if you fought against them. So basically everyone became incompetent at fencing when you were fencing them. Sir, this report of his did Hamlet so envenom with his envy that he could nothing do but wish and beg your sudden coming o'er to play with you. So this report of Lamord's did so envenom Hamlet. Envenom is literally poisoned, but here it means something like made him bitter, as though he was poisoning himself with envy over Laertes' abilities. Hamlet's jealous about his fencing, apparently. This, I guess, all happened in those months we didn't see? I don't know. So he was so bitter that he could nothing do but wish and beg your sudden coming o'er. He was so bitter he could do nothing except for wishing and begging for you to return immediately from France. To play with you, not play with blocks. Play meaning fence or sword fighting. And now he's getting to the action. Now, out of this, so because of this, or building on this, and Laertes says what we've all been wanting to say for the last five minutes, what out of this, my lord? Like, get to the point, old man. And this is where Claudius really turns the screws. He says, Laertes... Was your father dear to you, or are you like the painting of a sorrow, a face without a heart? Oof. He's really appealing to this guy's weakest part. That guy just spent like ten minutes two scenes ago talking about how dear his father was to him. So was your father really dear to you, or are you like the painting of a sorrow? Remember Claudius's speech about paint on the face of a prostitute? It's almost that same idea, that your exterior is all sorrow, like a canvas with a sad face painted on it. But do you really have a heart? It's always really interesting in this play to see Claudius using Hamlet's favorite image, the beautiful exterior, rotten interior image that's running throughout the play. And Laertes is pretty offended. He finishes the king's verse line. He says, why ask you this? And now Claudius has to walk a tightrope because he has to get Laertes really worked up and angry at Hamlet without threatening his own safety. He says, not that I think you did not love your father. So I'm not asking because I think you didn't love him, but that I know love is begun by time and that I see in passages of proof, time qualifies the spark and fire of it. This is in some ways oddly like the speech of the king in the play they watched. So he says he knows that love is begun by time. Time in this case being the particular occasion or circumstance that created the love, and that I see in passages of proof. You get that cool double P sound. Passages of proof are experiences which tested this theory. And what's that theory? That time qualifies the spark and fire of it. Qualifies means reduces or lessens. So just as time starts love, the passage of time also lessens it, the spark and fire of it. And then he has this beautiful image to describe what he's talking about. He says, There lives within the very flame of love a kind of wick or snuff that will abate it. And the image is of a candle. So inside this burning flame of love, there is a kind of wick or snuff. Snuff is just the burnt part of the wick that will abate it, that will diminish it or keep it lower. This is why we have candles, by the way, so that fires burn in a controlled way. And the wick is meant to do that gradually. In this case, that wick or snuff is time. And nothing is at a like goodness still. So nothing's at the same level of quality forever. For goodness, growing to a pleurisy, dies in his own too much. Pleurisy is like an overabundance or a glut, too much of something. So even goodness, even the best things, they get overabundant and they're destroyed because there's too much of them. Like, I love cake, but if you kept eating cake forever, you'd die. That we would do... We should do when we would. This is an amazing passage, so follow along as closely as you can. It's a little confusing. That we would do, the thing we want to do, that we have the will to do right now, we should do when we would. We should do at exactly the moment we want to do it. This is right up Hamlet's alley, by the way. And why should we do this thing we want to do right away? For this would 
changes and hath abatements and delays, as many as there are tongues, our hands, our accidents, this wood, this wanting to do something, it changes, it hath abatements. Abatements, remember we saw the snuff abating a flame. It means lessenings, reductions, and also delays. As many of those as there are tongues in the world, as there are hands in the world, as there are accidents, in other words, random actions. So as soon as this desire comes into contact with the real world, there's a million things out there that can stop it from getting done. And then this should is like a spendthrift sigh that hurts by easing. Then this word should, I should do it, is like a spendthrift sigh. You can almost hear the sighing sound in that language, in those S sounds. Spendthrift means wasteful, like someone who spends too much. And then the sigh, that's the way you get your sadness out. But there was this belief that you only had a certain amount of breath for your whole life. And that if you sighed too much, you were spending it. Like that thing we talked about earlier about your spirit coming out of your blood. And what does that sigh do? It hurts by easing. So it might make you feel better to get those sighs out, but you're slowly killing yourself. I mean, this is an almost perfect criticism of Hamlet's revenge, and it appeals to everything that Laertes wants to do. He wants to act now, now, now. And so what Claudius is saying is, we should do things as soon as we get the idea in our head, because as soon as we wait to do them, it becomes harder and harder to do them. But somebody got a little carried away by his poetic wanderings. He says, but to the quick of the ulcer. The quick of the ulcer is the innermost, the most sensitive part of the wound. So let's get right to the thing that matters the most, the most painful, important part. And then he has this really forceful three-word phrase. Hamlet comes back. That's the quick of the ulcer. Your enemy is coming here. What would you undertake to show yourself your father's son in deed more than in words? So what would you undertake, what would you do to show that you're your father's son, not just in words, but in actions? It's really cool to see this line after Claudius's speech much earlier in the play, talking about his deed and his most painted word. So I know you can talk well, but how are you going to show it? And Laertes has a really clear answer for that. He says, to cut his throat in the church. See, again, it's those monosyllables. It's as simple and direct as possible. What would I do? I'd go into a church, the holiest place there is, and I'd kill him there. It's brutal. Claudius is just sharpening Laertes into this incredible weapon against Hamlet. When Laertes says he'd kill him in the church, Claudius replies, no place indeed should murder sanctuarize. So you're right, no place should give sanctuary to a murderer. Because sometimes if you were accused of something, you could run into a church and claim sanctuary there so you couldn't be arrested. But he says no church should take in a murderer. Revenge should have no bounds. There should be nowhere you can't take revenge. But good Laertes, will you do this? Keep close within your chamber. See these short, choppy sentences within the verse lines? He's really giving orders at this point. Will you do this thing for me? Keep close within your chamber. Stay concealed. Stay pent up inside your room. Hamlet returned shall know you are come home. So when Hamlet comes back, he's going to hear that you're back too. We'll put on those shall praise your excellence and set a double varnish on the fame the Frenchman gave you. We'll put on those. We'll organize some people who will praise your excellence at fencing and set a double varnish. This is a really cool image if you've ever varnished a piece of wood or furniture. Not only are we going to polish up your fame, your reputation, we're going to double polish it. We're going to make it shine even brighter on the fame the Frenchman gave you, on the reputation that the French guy, Lamour, told everyone you had. And after that, bring you in fine together and wager on your heads. In fine means finally or at last. So after all this buildup, we'll finally bring you together and wager on your heads. Make a bet over this match. He, being remiss, most generous, and free from all contriving, will not peruse the foils. So Hamlet, being remiss, being sort of careless, most generous, just a nice guy, and free from all contriving, not the kind of person who plots or schemes, will not peruse the foils. He won't examine the fencing swords closely. So that with ease, or with a little shuffling, you may choose a sword unbaited, and in a passive practice, requite him for your father. 
so easily enough, or with a little shuffling, with a little sleight of hand, the sword you choose will be unbated. If you've ever seen a fencing sword, you know they're not sharpened, or they have a little button on the end, so you can't actually hurt anyone with them. Well, this one is unbated. It's not blunted. So Laertes is going to choose the one that could actually hurt Hamlet. And in a passive practice, a pass is a thrust. And practice is fun because it has two meanings. One is our sense of practice, like you're practicing for the match, you're doing a few warm-ups. But practice can also mean treachery or scheming. You also get that fun alliteration of passive practice. So in that thrust, you'll requite him for your father. You'll pay him back for what he did to your father. And Laertes is so excited about this that he jumps right into the verse line and says, I will do it. And for that purpose, I'll anoint my sword. So to do it, I'll anoint, which means to rub something, usually with an oil or an ointment of some kind. It's what you do to a king. Conveniently enough, he says, I bought an unction of a mountebank so mortal that but dip a knife in it. Where it draws blood, no cataplasm so rare, collected from all simples that have virtue under the moon, can save the thing from death that is but scratched withal. So unction means ointment or mixture in general. Remember the flattering unction of Gertrude? Well, this is a real unction. He bought it from a mountebank. A mountebank is basically a snake oil salesman. They were kind of the only people you could buy poison from. So it was an unction so mortal, in other words, so deadly, that but dip a knife in it. So if you just dip your knife or sword in it, wherever it draws blood on someone, no cataplasm so rare. A cataplasm is like a treatment, especially like an herbal treatment. So not even the rarest treatment. Rare can mean both our sense of scarce and also amazing. Collected from all simples. Simples are medicinal herbs that have virtue. Virtue in this case means power, but especially healing power. So if you got all the best herbs and combine them together into this cataplasm, all the simples under the moon, in other words, on earth, the moon was also thought to have special powers. Remember the midnight weeds in the play within the play? So not even that can save the thing from death that is but scratched with all. With all meaning with this knife. So basically he's saying there's no cure for this poison even if you're just scratched with it. He goes on, I'll touch my point with this contagion that if I gall him slightly, it may be death. Contagion in this case means the poison. If I gall him slightly, just meaning scratch or graze him just a little bit, it'll be his death. And Claudius is into it. He continues his line. Let's further think of this. Weigh what convenience both of time and means may fit us to our shape. So let's think more about this. Weigh what convenience. In other words, consider what the most convenient time and means are that may fit us to our shape. In other words, that may suit our plan. So we'll just find out what the best time and method is to carry this plan out against him. But then he has another thought because one of his plans already went wrong. He says, if this should fail and that our drift look through our bad performance, twere better not assayed. So if this goes wrong and that our drift, in other words, our true intentions, look through, shows through our bad performance, our bad carrying out of this plan, twere better not assayed. It would have been better if we had never even attempted it. Because if people find out why they're having this fencing match, that's the end of the line for Claudius and probably for Laertes too. So he says, therefore, this project should have a back or second that might hold if this did blast in proof. So this project of ours should have a back or second, which are both ways to say a backup plan that might hold, that might still go forward if this did blast in proof. Literally, if this blows up in our faces when we carry it out. Soft, let me see. Soft being this word that just means, hold on, wait a second, I'm thinking. We'll make a solemn wager on your cunnings. I have it. Cunnings are skill levels. In other words, they're going to set odds on these people. And as soon as he thinks of that, he says, I have it. I have it. He knows exactly the plan he's going to use as the backup. When in your motion you are hot and dry, as make your bouts more violent to that end, and that he calls for drink, I'll have prepared him a chalice for the nonce. 
So when in your motion, when in your fencing attacks, you are hot and dry, you know, from the exercise, as make your bouts more violent to that end. In other words, and by the way, you should make your bouts, your fencing passes back and forth, more violent to that end, to the goal of making him hot and dry. So really run around so he's going to want to take a drink. And that he calls for drink, I'll have prepared him a chalice for the nonce. A chalice is another way to say a cup or a goblet. For the nonce, for this occasion. Whereon but sipping, if he by chance escape your venom stuck... Our purpose may hold there. So if he even just sips on that chalice, if by chance he escapes your venomed stuck. Stuck is another way of saying when you stick him with your sword, your poisoned sword thrust. Our purpose may hold there. So if the sword plan fails, our purpose, our intentions, will hold, will get carried out with the cup plan. Woo, so that's the plan. Have you by any chance noticed how long these guys have been talking? Seriously, they will not shut up. In most productions, and in bad productions of Hamlet in particular, this scene is interminable. Mostly because it's all exposition, but partly because we're waiting for Hamlet to get here. We know what's going to happen. There's going to be a big showdown. So why do we have to wait for 15 minutes while these guys talk? We haven't seen Hamlet in like half an hour at this point, or 45 minutes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is basically why this scene exists. Maybe you've noticed that Hamlet was on stage for most of the first two, two and a half hours of this play. The reason Hamlet is offstage now, and these guys are blabbing, is because the actor who's playing Hamlet is offstage now. That dude is exhausted, and he has to do Act 5, which is another 45 minutes or so, and it has a sword fight in it. You'll find this in almost every one of Shakespeare's big tragedies, wherever there's one central part who has most of the lines. Shakespeare was an actor, and he worked with an active company of actors. He knew that one person can't be on stage for two or three or four hours straight. They're going to run out of gas, their voice is going to run out. So almost every one of these big tragedies has a scene like this somewhere in Act 4, which is when the actor goes backstage, closes their eyes, and rests. So you can almost imagine Shakespeare writing this scene like, stall for time, stall for time. Now it's to his credit that he still keeps it relatively interesting. But a lot of this scene is just so that the guy playing Hamlet can recharge for Act 5. And of course, you know, building suspense and all that, but mostly the rest. Anyway, so Claudius's plan is coming together, it's all going great, and as with most of Claudius's plans, trouble enters the room. In this case, it enters the room in the form of his wife. He hears a noise. He says, but stay, what noise? Stay meaning wait, or hold on a second. What noise is this? And the queen comes in and he says, how now, sweet queen? What's up? She does not have good news. She says, one woe doth tread upon another's heel so fast they follow. So one woe, one sad thing, doth tread, doth step on the heel of another one so fast they follow. So you can imagine a chain of sad events, each one following on the other, sort of like the battalion of sorrows Claudius was talking about earlier, and they're following each other so closely that one of them steps on the back of the other one's foot. And what's this woe? Your sister's drowned, Laertes. Oh, this is just brutal. It was bad enough she went insane, but now she's dead? And all Laertes can say is, drowned? Oh, where? It's a weird question, but it's also a prompt for Gertrude to give this very, very famous speech about the death of Ophelia. And we'll talk at the end of the speech about why it's so weird, but let's hear it first. She says, There is a willow grows aslant a brook that shows his hoar leaves in the glassy stream. So there's a willow tree that grows aslant a brook. In other words, it grows across a brook, a little river. And the tree shows his hoar leaves. Hoar in the spelling, H-O-A-R, means that they're gray with age. So it's a very, very old tree. So it shows its leaves in the glassy stream, almost as though it's a mirror. You also see the way that those two stressed syllables in a row, hoar leaves, really slow down that line. And notice the choice of tree. It's a willow, like a weeping willow. So there's sadness built into it. She goes on. There with fantastic garlands did she come of crow flowers, nettles, daisies, and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. 
So she came to that willow with fantastic garlands, not just fantastic, like beautiful, but like fantasy, like imagination. They were really imaginative and elaborate. She had weaved garlands of flowers. And what flowers? Of crow flowers, nettles, daisies, and long purples. These are all different kinds of flowers, but she really gets into these long purples. Why? Because liberal shepherds, not like left-leaning, like they speak really freely, like construction workers or sailors. Shepherds will swear they'll say anything, so they're kind of free-speaking shepherds. They give a grosser name. Grosser meaning vulgar or coarser. And what's the name they have for these long purples? Well, we don't know, but the theory is that there's this kind of purple flower that looks a little bit like a penis. There's another theory about a particular purple orchid that has some very suggestive roots. Either way, it's amazing how much room in scholarship is taken up in deciding exactly which obscene purple flower this is. So the shepherds give it this one gross name, but our cold maids, cold not like they need a coat, but chaste or virtuous, the opposite of liberal in this case. Our maids do dead men's fingers call them. I guess something that looked like a penis could also kind of look like a finger. So the liberal shepherds call it this, but the cold maids call it that. It's interesting that she brings this up in the speech about Ophelia's death, because there's this idea of dead men's fingers, and she's about to be dead. Anyway, there on the pendant boughs, her coronet weeds clambering to hang, an envious sliver broke, when down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook. This is a beautiful line, but we have to reorder the words a little bit to make this make sense. So she was clambering to hang her coronet weeds there on the pendant boughs. Pendant means hanging down, since this is a weeping willow, and the branches sort of hang down towards the brook. Her coronet weeds, these plants that are formed into crowns, in other words, clambering to hang. She was climbing out onto the boughs to hang these coronet weeds on them. An envious sliver broke. I love that word, envious. It's not that it envied her beautiful skin or something. It's envious in the sense that it was malicious. And a sliver, a twig or a branch broke. This is really dense language, too. You can see all the adjectives in this line. Pendant, coronet, envious. So this branch breaks when down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook. So we had coronet weeds. Now we have weedy trophies, which is just another word for these garlands. And herself fell in the weeping brook. This is another awesome adjective, weeping. Number one, it's full of water, so it's as though it's full of tears, but also it's under a weeping willow. I also really like having the words weedy and weeping in the same line. You almost get a sense that the language is crying. And then we get this amazing image of her in the water. Her clothes spread wide and mermaid-like a while they bore her up. So she was wearing a dress and it spread out in the water and bore her up, held her up in the water like a mermaid. Which time she chanted snatches of old tunes as one incapable of her own distress, or like a creature native and endued unto that element. So during that time that the clothes bore her up, she chanted snatches of old tunes. You'll sometimes hear the line as old lauds, which is another way to say melodies. So she just sang little bits of old melodies, kind of like she did when she was on stage, as one incapable of her own distress, like a person who didn't really understand or realize that she was in distress, or like a creature native and endued unto that element. Endued means accustomed to or even born into that element, which is to say water. So almost like she was a fish. The water didn't bother her because it seemed like she had been used to it her whole life. And this is a beautiful image and it seems to hang there. It also hangs right in the middle of a verse line, so we anticipate what comes next. And Gertrude has to end it. She says, But long it could not be till that her garments, heavy with their drink, pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. It couldn't stay that way very long, because her garments, heavy with their drink. It's cool to describe the way that her clothes soak up water as drinking. Her clothes get heavy and they pull the poor wretch from her melodious lay, lay being a way to say song, and melodious from melody, to muddy death. So he doesn't say from the air to muddy death. He says from song to death. 
from melodious lay to muddy death. And Laertes says, Alas, then, she is drowned? You think, buddy? Now, one criticism that he may have is, Oh, you saw this whole thing enough to describe this so beautifully? Why didn't you get her out of the water? I've heard various excuses for this. She was watching from a tall tower somewhere. She was too far away. I've even heard it suggested that she let Ophelia die. You know, so she'd stop singing songs about her dead father in the castle. But really, we just need someone to describe how Ophelia died, so it's a convenience. So when Laertes asks if Ophelia is drowned, Gertrude doesn't say yes. She says, drowned, drowned, almost as though she's lost the ability to speak after all that. And Laertes was angry already, but now that Ophelia is dead, he goes cold angry. He says, too much of water hast thou, poor Ophelia, and therefore I forbid my tears. So you already have too much water from drowning, and therefore I forbid my tears. I forbid myself to cry, to add any water to that. So he tries to stop himself from crying, but he can't. He says, but yet it is our trick. Trick meaning like the normal reaction of humans to sad things. Nature her custom holds, let shame say what it will. Nature holds her custom, so this is the usual or habitual behavior of natural things. Let shame say what it will, no matter what shame says about it, especially this male shame at crying in public. And then he concludes, when these are gone, the woman will be out. When these are gone, when these tears are gone, the woman will be out. The woman will be finished or done with. The woman in this case is probably his female side, the side of him that will cry. So as soon as I finish crying these tears, I'm never going to cry again. I'm just going to get my revenge. He says, adieu, my lord. Goodbye. I have a speech of fire that fain would blaze, but that this folly doubts it. Fain means willingly or gladly. So he has this very fiery speech that he would gladly say, though I love that word choice of blaze, but that this folly doubts it. If it wasn't for the fact that this foolish behavior, in other words, the crying, doubts it, extinguishes it. So it's as though he wants to shoot fire out of his mouth, but the tears from his eyes keep putting it out. So this is a guy so overcome by grief that he can't even say how he feels anymore. And it looks like Laertes is swinging out of control again. So Claudius turns to Gertrude and says, let's follow Gertrude. Let's follow after that guy. How much I had to do to calm his rage. I had to do so much to calm him down after he stormed in here. Now fear I this will give it start again. Now I'm worried that you reporting Ophelia's death is going to start his rage back up again. Therefore, let's follow. It's sort of like those come Gertrudes in the earlier scene where he has to tell her things twice. Again, maybe there is some resistance to him, especially after she sees what happened to Ophelia. The king's plans are not going well. So everything is set up for the big showdown in Act 5, but that's the end of Act 4, and that's the end of Part 7 of Hamlet. Come back for Part 8, which is one of the weirdest and most amazing scenes Shakespeare ever wrote, I promise. And oh, by the way, we get to see the title character again. Remember Hamlet from the play Hamlet? He's coming back. In the meantime, I'd really appreciate it if you would help to make this podcast possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. I really appreciate it. Bye.